Yo, what up? How's everybody doing? My guest this afternoon, good friend of mine from、uh, Los Angeles, California. My guy, you know the group. Word of mouth, ABB Records, Capitol Records, Dilated Peoples. My man, Rocka Irish Science. Where's he at? Tap in with me, Rock. Ah, what's up, family? There he is. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing well, brother. How you doing? I'm good, man. It's great to see you, man. You too, man. You too. You looking I, slim? Thank you, bro. And likewise, I, I, I was trying to remember when the last time we saw each other was, man. Can, do you remember when that was? I don't. I know I've seen you since tour or someplace, but I don't remember exactly when it is. Okay. Yeah. We are going to get into all that. <laughs> we are. All right, let's do it. All that shit. But I, I, it's only right I have to do a proper introduction. <laughs> all right. All right. Thanks. This man, you know him well. If you know hip hop, if you know West Coast hip hop, if you know independent hip hop, if you know this, if you know the class of ind- independent hip hop that graduated into major label hip hop, if you know martial arts, <laughs> lyrical arts, you know this man is one half. Of the very important, third, the awesome group, dilated one third, one third. Oh right! Oh my God! You're right. <laughs> We can't have this Asian Pacific Islander on Asian Pacific Islander hatred. <laughs> so you gotta look out for that. My bad, bad. <laughs> my bad, Pate. My bad.、Uh, one third, indeed, of the incredible group, dilated peoples. Rocka, Rocka, Irish Science in the building. <laughs> Appreciate you, brother. Always keeping it old school with the corded <laughs> liquor store earphones. Got to do it, man. Got to do it. <laughs> How are you, man? I'm doing all right, man. I'm doing those crazy times, man. But I'm doing well. I'm doing、yeah. well. How about yourself? I- I'm all right, man. I'm all right. Are, are are you in Southern California right now? Yeah, yeah. I'm in SoCal, definitely.、Oh. Yeah. So. You know, we're gonna get into. I, I, you, you know, the the thing about mobile homies, and you know, I've been doing this for about the past six months, mostly、mm-hmm. because I've just been bored as fuck, and I, <laughs> to, to a lot of people because we're all at home. So the point of this is that I get to catch up with my friends who I know from the industry, or you know, I know outside of the game, but I don't know everything. You know、mm-hmm. what I mean? So, like, it, it, it's cool for me and, and for the fans to be able to use this opportunity to learn more. You know what I mean? Especially for myself. You know what I'm saying? Because I know you, <laughs> indeed. But I, I know that there's things that I don't know, and there are other things that I do know, but I need more information. You know what、all、I mean?、Right. So, and I'm going to ask all the boring interview questions, but you know, we're also going to go deeper. Cool. Let, let me ask you this.、Uh, like I said, a lot a lot of people probably know you best for as being a third of dilated peoples. Exactly. How did it all start for you as a small child? <laughs> Was that what part of it? Just me growing up? Yes.、Um, I grew up mostly in L.A., but also between、um, L.A., Waimanalo, and Hawaii, and, and Phoenix, Arizona, growing up. 
spent some time up, some time up in the town too. So you know how that goes. Yeah, I had some some family up there, so my you know my pops would take us up on the road trips. I didn't, I never went to school up there. Really had people, but like family, we'd go to like family get-togethers up in Oakland. So, yeah, that, that that's kind of how it started. Um, around twelve years old, I got into graffiti art, and so um, through graffiti art, I ended up meeting a cat named DJ Rob One from LA. Who rest in peace, Rob One. Peace, Rob. Uh, yes, indeed. And Rob One, he asked me to host a a mixtape. For for a birthday mixtape that he was doing for the for the big homie Skate, also rest in peace Skate one, and from that it was like the old school times where you didn't have a microphone, you plugged the headphones into the microphone jack to rock on the headphones like a microphone, like right. And that's kind of how I started, like kind of getting a feeling for it. Um, I was always into writing, creative writing, so I was doing poetry and stuff like that. So it just kind of all merged together into a weird way. Um, but yep. yeah, that's that's how I started through graffiti art. What year is this about this the, the whole what the, the this the whole Rob Once situation that you just described and and get um it was probably like eighty seven or something like that we were young it was we were really young still he was living with his uncle and he had like a old like Radio Shack set up um, realistic uh, turntable mixers and all this other stuff so we were we were super young but it was like late eighties sometime and, and and what part of L A is this that you're talking about they live. Um, in Hollywood, like right near Fairfax, like right off maybe a couple blocks from the Melrose Strip, not too far from like uh, either Melrose, right off of Melrose or right off of Santa Monica near Fairfax, someplace, someplace, somewhere around that time. Okay, and where were you? Uh, I was living on Pico and Fairfax, um, an area called Mid City. Um, now it's Little Ethiopia uh, or something like that. Yeah, but yeah, Mid City, Pico and Fairfax. Now, it wasn't called Mid City back then, though, was it? It was called, yeah, it was called Mid City. Yeah. Um, it just wasn't like really pronounced. It was like, because there was like, uh, it was Mid-City or Midtown. They called it Midtown or Mid-City, but it was just more like the name of an area. It hadn't really, L.A. was just L.A. at that time. It hadn't really broken up into these little cool areas for real estate agents to, you know, get their extra bread yet. You know what I mean? So, yeah. but yeah, it was it was considered like Mid-City just because it was, it's, it's really right in the middle of the city. So, yeah, it was, it was called Mid-City. And I, and I heard, I, I feel like I, heard that a lot of other rappers came from mid-city too like uh, um, yeah um like, i heard like is it merce from merce is from mid-city yeah uh omd two mexicans chololan cinco they're from mid-city who else would be from out there um double k from people under the stairs uh, he's from around my way yeah so that's when you started getting a feel for rap so you start off as a graph writer yeah i started out in graffiti yeah for sure and then around that time is when you get you started to dabble in rapping yeah for sure yeah i started messing around i mean it was one of those things where you know at that in that era people had like their special specializations they you know what the thing they were best at but everyone tried to do a little bit of everything so even if you see like a a lot of rappers today they never they were never even really heavy graffiti dudes but they could write their name in like a fresh style or something because they had like a little you know back in eighth grade or something they were trying to do it so they figured out a little you know they broke through so like you always wanted to be able to dabble and do a little bit of everything um but my thing at the time was graffiti art then it moved into emceeing actually i I started djing a little bit but i never had equipment or anything so i would just dj over at rob's crib and you know that's interesting though because when anybody that came up like in the mid or late 80s it, it was hip hop was such a lifestyle back then. It's like right. it wasn't just like oh I rap or I do graffiti. That you know you you didn't have just sort of this one. You just kind of did it all because it was a it was a very broad sort of culture. And in L.A. too, there was like this underlying gang element that 
always kind of, you know, um, found its way to, you know, wolf its way through the whole situation. So how did that affect things? Like in what way? In what way did it? From a street, you had to be careful where you were painting. <laughs> you had to be careful where you were going because, you know, from down the block, a lot of these cats don't know if you're an enemy coming to, you know, right in their hood or if you're a graffiti artist. And sometimes they didn't even care if you happen to, if your line touched their line or if you, you know, there's, there was times where people would get in trouble because like there'd be like some gang writing on the wall, let's say like in flat black or something. Right. And then you would come in and hit the wall in flat black and people would assume that you were just writing your name in two different styles, but that's really you or you're, so, you're associated. So there were all kind of crazy things that were happening. Um, graffiti art is usually done like late night in some crazy places and some crazy times. So you were kind of running around the same time and in the same vicinity as some of the, you know, some of the gang, gang stuff that was going on at the time too. So it got a little crazy, but on a, on a more positive, more positive level, I think there were a lot of the placasos, like a lot of the, old English, like LA gang styles yeah. kind of made its way into the LA graffiti style. I mean, graffiti art, as we know it coming out of, out of New York, out of, coming out of the East coast, excuse me. Um, when it came to LA, like there are people like, like King soon and legit and people like that, that were from New York that really brought that subway art, spray can art style of graffiti art to LA and LA. We had graffiti, but it was like, gang blockbusters sometimes they'd be two stories tall like perfect perfect hand skill calligraphy just black letter or whatever um and i think the fact that that scene wasn't going anywhere but there was this wave of stuff from new york kind of created some really interesting unique graffiti styles in la they were kind of hybrid styles so is this right around the time where ice t used to wear spikes it was some spikes, some spikes going on. There was some fur and leather were things were happening like that. Like Radiotron, those are Radiotron days. So like, yeah, like, yeah, there was definitely that. Let's talk about Radiotron a little bit. Did you uh, go to those? Did you? I've only been to, I only went to Radiotron once and I was just outside. I didn't even go in. I was, I was like a little kid. You know, cause growing up in the Bay, all we knew about LA hip hop besides the music, besides the records at that time, you know, probably mid or late eighties. I mean, what was that? L.A. What I'm thinking is I was hearing L.A. Dream Team, Egyptian Lover, you know what I mean? Um, Uncle, Jam, right. Uncle Jam's Army, you know, right. um, early Ice-T records, yeah. early Wrecking Crew, you know, mm -hmm. like kind of that, that way. That was my initiation into L.A. hip hop, that and watching motherfucking Breaking. <laughs> right, right. And so... My impression of L.A. hip hop was everybody dressed like Shabadoo, rest in peace. You right, know? rest in peace. Yeah, yeah. With like motherfucking crisscross S and M spike, spike, spike strips, <laughs> like belts, so many, with yeah. featherless gloves. You feel? Yeah, feather earrings. Yes, yeah, like. <laughs> motherfucking party angels beret with a big, right. you know, like some kind of animal tail. <laughs> just a random, a random critter. <laughs> like we had a radio station on AM. It was a big AM station called 1580 K-Day. So shout out to Julio G, to Tony G, M Walk, Ralph M. Yes. Uh, who else? Just, it was just a, it was a, yeah, that was, who people know from Funk Dubious and the Soul Assassins family. But the 1580 K-Day was like six days a week. Hip -hop. On Sundays, they would chill and play gospel music for part of the day. But <laughs> the rest of the time, it was like, that's when you would hear like live. I remember hearing like 
Roxanne Shantae live concert at some school or you would hear people run D, whoever was in town they would come up there run DMC would be up there at the radio station or or, or Boogie Down Productions would be at the radio station Dude. whoever yeah just a big a big situation and so like that was a to have that going on and have it really break through and, and connect with people that was a big thing to to make LA a a major hotspot for for rap music and and in turn like also spread hip hop culture so so is my is our take on that situation visually was that off was that the movies you know what i'm saying a lot of that was the a lot of that was the movies okay. but then what, what ended up happening is i mean there was some of that that was because you had you know you had people coming out of like the um out of like the funk era um yeah soul sonic force which is bambada and that's where a lot of that you know you had like people like you know soul sonic force that were dressed in like parliament yeah, exactly. And so like this was like kind of like a stripped down street version of Parliament. Right. But then after these movies came out, you could like go to the mall and kind of like buy those outfits almost or at least be like get like a kit together, get like three pieces and plug, you know what I'm saying? Next thing you know, you but nobody was really some things broke through. I remember like parachute pants and like certain things that were just like, you know, zip down, pop, you know, they were um we call them china flats or or kung fu flats, but like the the the, the, the or karate shoes, they would call them just Yeah. Huh? With the and the and the girls used to wear them with the roses on the yeah, of course, yeah, see, yeah, so you know what time it is, yeah, so yeah, there was that, but at at that time it was it was like it kind of I guess maybe depended on where you know at my school it was like starter jackets and bomber jackets and things like that. That was more what it what it was kind of leaning towards, and it was always like the t shirts and you know just it was just a kind of a mix of gang stuff too so like yeah those those people were like all right that they must be like they a performing arts student or something like that they must be in some or in theater you know theater or whatever but yeah. there was a few people that rock like that not too many there were a few yeah. though because as you know back then no matter where you were from the only way that we could tell what how the culture was represented elsewhere was yeah. by album covers right That's right I knew what what NWA and CIA and 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 what that whole vibe was just by looking at my posse. You know what I mean? Like, you know, so we were like with the with too short. Like, so my impression was like the whole bay was too short. Like, as for you know, we, yeah, I just assumed that's how that was going down for a long time until I heard E forty, and then after that, the next big wave I heard after forty was like. Right. Maybe like Dell, Dell and Hyrule, like, you know, it was like the next big movement of stuff, that stuff that was like totally different. And I was, you know, I don't know when that was like 89. I don't know when that was something like that. Like, yeah. but there was like, you're right. Like you see the album cover or you would catch just like a random something really small and random, like a flick someplace. You'd be like, oh, that must be how everybody in that area is, you know. Oh, but, yeah. So because yeah. all we really had to go by in terms of L.A., right, as far as the Bay was concerned, and probably the rest of the world, because we were all seeing the same thing at that time. Right. Motherfucking Breaking, the movie Breaking, <laughs> yeah. happened, or Colors. Or co- right, you right. Know? <laughs> and Ice-T was in a part of both of them. You know what I mean? Right. So, right. Oh, that's all we really had. You, you you know what I mean? At that time. And then, and then obviously, the music that was coming out. You know? Right, yeah. Um, and so you're kind of coming up in that context, right? Like in that that sort of late, you're getting a feel for it in the late '80s, and in, in that yeah, and that's the that's the era that I grew up in too. So like half of it was like on some pure 
you know, hip hop or, you know, the L.A. version of what that was. You had Ice-T on stage with who Africa Islam and people like that that were like really doing it that way. But then you also had colors and that, that represented a whole, you know, in, in fact, you know, it's kind of crazy, like talking about like gangs today. You know, I don't want to speak out of turn, but there's like politics, there's racial issues, you know, jails, things that have trickled down into the community. Um, and I think, you know, to a certain extent, there was always like a sense, like a cultural connection people would get together kind of based on maybe some some to a large extent based on their culture but back in the colors time like in the in the in the 80s there were there were a lot of mixed gangs like there were a lot of people that were like that people nowadays like youngsters that are banging today or you know different you know later generations would they'd be surprised at what their gang used to look like before you know other issues came in and kind of separated people based on 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 cultures and race and things like that there were a lot of mixed gangs a lot of stuff so when you see a, a movie like colors even though it's obviously hollywood like some of that was you know, like they it really they really did have like mixed up gangs like that it was really crazy so so like you mean like ethnically mixed ethnically mixed yeah 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 see we didn't have that shit up here right you know we, yeah. we don't know anything about that you know what i mean yeah. we it wasn't until I started going to LA, I was like, wow, this is this is serious. It gets it gets a little crazy, you know? It gets yeah. a little crazy. I used to go down there and dudes would be like, you, you know, we're about to go into such and such an area. You might want to take that jacket off, you know? Especially if you're from the Bay, because you would, cats from the Bay would come down in a lot of red. They'd be, right. they'd be, they'd be blooding out a lot just because that's the, the, that's like relate, like brother, that's like family, kin, kinfolk, whatever they want to call it, but it's like, They'd be using blood everywhere. Like, what's up, blood? Like, be like, yo, yo, bitch. <laughs> yeah. Like when me and Latif used to do radio runs. Uh, you know what I mean? Up here, people say, we'll say blood and cuz in the same sentence. Right. You, right. You know what I mean? It doesn't, it, 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 it I, means something totally it, different. It means like family. It's like we're connected. Like we're, re like we have relations. Like we're, yeah. Like, dude. You know what I mean? Yeah, dude. You know? And I know that I, I was down uh, when we used to do radio runs. And um, Latif let a couple of those fly. <laughs> and you, you know, back in the in the eighties and early nineties, you go down to a radio run, a radio station, be full of people. You know, yeah, right. Lined up, hungry wolves in there. Here we are doing these Latirics runs, and you know, up here, like I said, everybody's like, "Yeah, black, you know what it is, cuz you, know, you like." Yeah. And dudes, and, and and Latif was, and we were in there, you know, and I was kind of, I was being mindful of the shit, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> But let's see, just out of habit, just because that's yeah. that's how, that's how we talk, you know what I mean? Latif let a couple of those fly, and and you felt the energy in You know, right, right. Like, and and I was like, well, something just shifted in here, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, it was you know, rap at that time was also very competitive anyway, so that was right. already, that was already in the air. Right, exactly. And, but it was years prior to that, man. When I when I started doing that, I really I saw how serious it was and how ingrained in the culture it was. You know, yeah, yeah, it's very serious. And you know, there it's unfortunate that you know that there's not like a, a you know a, a pass that you could wear around your neck to be like because I've seen people get caught out caught out there in some crazy situations. And this is before it kind of went nationwide. And also historically, there's always been a lot more. Crips and Bloods, like numbers wise, yeah. and in hip hop, the Crips had like a big run of being like more in the in the at the forefront, more in the spotlight. So when somebody came out blood, like talking about blood, it was 
definitely a very dynamic situation. Like it would pop off. Like it would it, like people's eyes mm, like what? Who's talking about that? Because it would be like people wearing all red. That's like a very flamboyant right. statement to make. You know, you wear blue. It's like oh man, I just got on some jeans and so. Like if you if you come in there, red, you know, like cats are like, what is it? Like what's really going on? So you know, it was a different time, but you know. Um, yeah, uh, it was it was crazy, but especially from the Bay, because I just I just know that a lot of 49ers gear would make it down here. And, and the, some of the guys in the 49ers gear be blooding, too. And it would just be like a double whammy. Like, right. Woo. <laughs> so then l- let me ask you this, then, because, you know, we're talking late 80. I mean, it's a really developmental time for hip hop on the West Coast, I feel like. I feel, uh, especially in is what from what it sounds like in your history, it was a very developing right. time. It was also like the height of the crack era, you know, right. at, at that moment. So there's all these really challenging dynamics happening at that moment, you know. Absolutely. So a, as a as a graph writer and and a blooming rapper mm. in that era of L.A. How did you navigate that, or or was it even a thought? You know, no, it was definitely a thought. Um, you just knew where you were at. Like you just you figured out real quick. Like you know, if you're in the jungle, you know over there is where the lions are. Over there is where the tigers. You know, whatever it is, like whatever the whatever you need to do. Like over there, they got some poisonous insects or something. Like so, it's just like it was kind of like that. Like you just know, like in this side of town is good. Like if you just, you know, you got to worry about the police over here, but you got to worry about this gang over there you got to worry about you know um, that gang over here you know don't dress like this don't go over here at these days or at night or you just had to go into it knowing that it's a possibility but a lot of times you have family and you have friends and you have people so like you know you're good like you go you go where you're good and if you're not good then you know you could maybe be like oh my homeboy so-and-so i know so-and-so and and da 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 you can kind of yeah slide around it but plenty of people couldn't you know plenty of people were getting there you know there's places you know plenty of graffiti artists got shot plenty of people got stomped out people got killed plenty of people were getting robbed all the time yeah uh, especially if if you know you weren't because you had people from like the west side which is considered like the like the more affluent areas going to like the east side to go paint and people like that they would look at them sometimes like food you know they look at them like oh these these dudes got bread like we're about to get paid right now so you know, it was it was kind of crazy, but I think there was also a different kind of crossover where there was like a lot of gang members that were also graffiti artists. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because of that, there were a lot of times or their cousins were or their brother was or whatever. So there was a lot of politicking and eventually it was kind of crazy later. Um, certain graffiti crews became gangs, became gangs. Mm-hmm. So like you know, they got absorbed basically into this neighborhood or that neighborhood. It became like a, a like a set of, of certain gangs. So, you know, and then you had like a whole tag banger, what it was called, like tag bangers who, who you know, were kind of like graffiti gangs sort of in a certain in a certain manner of speaking. So it was, you know, L.A. gang culture is just a part of of the city. I mean, there's a lot of gang members out here, a lot of different sets that represent a lot of different things. Going back, like you have some some old gangs going back to like the what thirties, twenties or something like that. So at this point, they're almost a hundred years old. So, you know, I'm going to start naming gang names, have people think I'm affiliated, but yeah. you know, like you have gangs that are about to turn a hundred right now from LA. You know what I mean? If they're not already a hundred, cause we're in 2021 right now. So it's right. crazy, man. Right. As you're navigating this, 
you know, into the late 80s, did you, did, did the rapping sort of ramp up and the graffiti kind of tapered off for you? Or how did that go? Yeah, I mean, there wasn't, it was a different day. Nowadays, there's like a street art scene and there's like, uh, you know, big murals. You could get walls and there's clothing companies and there's all this other stuff. Back then, it was like most of the people that I knew when, you know, or not a lot of people, I shouldn't say most people, but a lot of people I knew when they turned 18, they just stopped because they were like, I'm not going to prison for this. You know, like I'll go to juvenile hall. I'll go sit down for a couple of days or go paint the park or something like, but I'm not trying to go to prison for graffiti. <laughs> yeah. And, so there were a lot of people when they turned 18, they stopped just so they wouldn't catch adult adult um, charges. But for me, it was just more of just a natural, like, you know, I was always interested in different things. I was always the kind of person that was doing a lot of different things. So as I got better at, at rhyming and writing, rec- writing raps and, and rapping, it just became more of my focus. And a lot of the people that I knew coming up were also getting into DJing or producing or rapping themselves or at least stretching out doing other things like, like Rob, Rob one went from, you know, um, he was a graffiti artist primarily to being DJ Rob one and then eventually working at record labels and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, and you had a lot of, you had a lot of people that were just in the scene that were just doing a lot of different things. So it wasn't like I had to change my, my social circle I was just doing something different. Um, and I would still get down. I would still dabble. I would still go, um, go get up, uh, go put some, you know, if I, if I felt like it, I would still hit Belmont or hit motor. That's how I met Ev. Like I met Ev at a graffiti yard named motor yard. What year was that? Probably 92, maybe. I don't know. Something like that. Something around that time. Were you in high school at the time, or, or no? I was just I was just getting out. Okay, uh, not too long before where you... that. Where did I go to high school? Yeah, I went to Fairfax High School, and then I went to University High School, and then I went to a school out in the valley called Sherman Oak CES, like oh. a magnet school. My mom's was like, "Nah, you got to get up out of here." So, were you a problem child, Rocco? I had opinions, you know what I'm saying? I had, I had my I had opinions and focuses, you know what I mean? Like I had, <laughs> I had ways I had ways I thought things should go. <laughs> okay. I, I asked that because I went to three different high schools. Okay. Right. And, and so from now on, when people ask me why, my answer from here on out is I had opinions. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> Anyway, continue. You're meeting Ev at the yard. Yeah, like I was, I was, I was finishing a piece with my crew, and Ev was down there with somebody from his crew. What was his crew? He was from AWR. He was from AWR crew, but um, at the time, no, he was AWR. I think he was already AWR at that time. Shout out to the whole AWR crew. That um, Seventh Letter, um, MSK, like that whole family of people. But yeah, no, that was Ev's crew. My crew was a crew called Create to Devastate, C2D crew. Man, that is so 80s. You already know. You already know it. <laughs> devastate. Create to Devastate. Like <laughs> Everything had to have eight. At the eight. Of it. Whether, whether you were a graffiti crew or a rap crew or a dance crew, you had to... <laughs> Create to Devastate. Yeah, so we met, we met at the yard originally because we were finishing a piece... And we were like grimy kids, man. We had like, you know, we'd be taking like old um, crates or boxes, stacking them up so we could get height to paint on it. Ev showed up with like, like a transformer or something. Like he showed up with like a ladder that could turn into like 
a loft or something. He was had some holes. We were like, what the fuck? Like, who is who is this kid? He had like, and so we were watching him painting, and we just ended up like, oh yeah, dope work. Oh, cool, dope work. So we left. And then a little while later, I was at I was working at the hip hop shop at the time on Melrose with Hex and Omega, Zulu Gremlin, Mark Ski, um, Iodine Teaspoon from Freestyle Fellowship, Skill from UTI. I loved him, man. Iodine? Oh, God. Oh, man. Yeah, man. I wish we could have heard more from him over the years. I loved him, man, as a rapper. He was incredible. But go ahead. Last time I saw him was actually in in San Francisco. Like, we were at a show, and someone was like, Teaspoon is here. I was like, Teaspoon? Iodine Teaspoon? And you look in the crowd. He was right there in the crowd. Like, it was, I guess he was living up there in the Bay at the time, so I'm not really sure. But, yeah, we all used to work at the the hip-hop shop. And what 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 was the hip hop shop for for those people that don't know, man? I mean, that's because it's a it's a big part of uh, an underground hip hop history in L.A. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the hip hop shop it started as a um like kind of like a graffiti, like a graffiti store, I guess you could call it graffiti store. But it was on Melrose, right near Melrose and Fairfax, across street from Fairfax High. And um, eventually, it kind of turned into like a spot where they would sell clothing, like OG Chino. I don't know if you know OG Chino, but OG Chino. Um, he had a spot in the back where he would sell records in inside the shop, but like a booth inside the shop. Hex would do Hex from uh, TGO would be doing live airbrushing and uh, open mics, open turntables, linoleum floors, everything. You know what's really interesting about that era? Or is this like early '90s? Would you say? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So what was really interesting, particularly on the West Coast, um, there were a lot of shops like that. You mm. know in major cities similar to the hip-hop sold pretty much anything hip-hop at the time you know what I mean? right like you could get you know fat caps or you could fat get laces you could get clothing magazines, yeah. stores like that like zebra records was kind of like that up here yeah. i heard of zebra yeah um you know they were kind of like this hybrid of like record store clothing store paint store community center but just say club like day club because it was day club, right? <laughs> yeah yeah especially like on a saturday you go there you would think it was like an event and it would just be people from all over the place yeah. hanging out watching people paint or just hanging out in front trying to get their black book signed or freestyling or right you know pissing off the neighbors whatever you know i talk i talked to the grouch about this man it's like when when you think about those those uh stores back then like on on melrose it's kind of like the odd future store now you know it's like now kids gravitate towards you know more clothing uh stores right right back then it was like yeah sort of like these hip-hop shop type hybrid kind of stores that sold everything hip-hop you know in this mom and pop owned independent business yeah because i mean because there weren't like major distribution deals for independent brands like there are now so like if you wanted to get a third rail or a con art shirt or something like that yeah. That's where you went to get it. Like if you wanted to, like same with the magazines. Like they didn't, you know, they weren't getting picked up by big, you know, uh, bookstore distrib- distributors all the time. So if you wanted to get a can control magazine or something like that that had like so serious, then you would probably have to go to a specialty shop to get it. Yeah, like Herb or Rat Pages. They only had them there. Or, yeah, but yeah. So you worked there. So you were like at ground zero for underground hip hop in, in L.A. Yeah, and I worked there. I mean, I remember like it was one shop. And then at a, at a certain point, Hex um, got the next door. So and then there was like a like a fake wall that that kind of separated them. So he just opened up that wall and it became like one big store. Wow. And I remember like Hex was real tight 
with uh with Kid Frost. Oh, shout out to Frost. Yeah. Shout out to Scoop too. His son Scoop Deville. Shout out to Scoop. Scoop. Yeah. Scoop. Yeah. Um, but I remember uh Frost showed up. I forget what he was driving, man. He had like a convertible, maybe it was like a LeBaron or something. But he was like whatever it was, he had like a bunch of cars, but he would come through and one day he came through and Hex was like, Yeah, I'm just gonna try to figure out how to get the floors done. Like I gotta get the floors done. And he's like, what? He was like, yeah, man, I got to lay concrete on these floors. I'm about to hire somebody. He's like, hold on, Holmes. He pulled off his rings. He's like, he started messing around for a second. He goes, hey, Rock, he gave me, throw me his car keys. He's like, can you run to Sears or, uh, uh, yeah, Sears. It was, uh, oh, no, a Builder's Emporium. It was a place called Builder's Emporium. It was like a big home repair. Like, you know, you get your stuff to fix your house or whatever. He, he had me go get like uh, some buckets, some cement bags, like a power mixer and this other stuff. He paid for the whole thing. We got back there. He mixed it up. He's like, hey, Holmes, I'm Mexican, Holmes. He's like, me and my uncles, we did half the the, the concrete at LAX. I was, I was like, what? He mixed it up. He, and next thing I know, he leaves scoring it, laying it down. He had the whole thing. I was like, oh, shit. We, we did the floors at the hip-hop shop. Me and Kid Frost. Hold on a minute. Time out. Kid Frost pulls up in a drop-top LeBaron. Yeah. At the hip hop shop, legendary Kid Frost, La Raza, Kid Frost, exactly. Latin Alliance mixes up some concrete <laughs> and, and lays down floors and redoes the and, and redoes. takes off takes off his rings, his watch, his necklaces, he, and he next you know he has it all over his arms. He's doing it. He's just on it, and he's telling me how to do. it. I was like, oh, this is a real one. Like Frost is, and he's still cool to this day, man. Frost is a cool one, man. He's a good dude, fucking dude, right there, yeah. Man. Good dude. Wow. Yeah, no, that's real, man. Like, if you ask Hex or any of those people that were around at that time, it was just a crazy thing. Like, man, this is crazy. But he didn't. He didn't hesitate. He wasn't like, no, let me. You know, let me. I, I would, but I gotta. He just took off his jewelry, whatever he had on, which is covered in cement, but his jewelry was clean still. Again, a lot of my LA stories are radio runs. Yeah. Uh, and uh, because really, that was the only reason why we came down was to do either do shows or do radio runs. Yeah, I did a radio run one time at the Beat with Dominique Deprima. You remember? Ah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It was me. You know, it, it, this is like uh, probably like '97, I think. Okay. So it was me right here, motherfucking Hutch, Cole One Eighty Seven. And, and, and I was the peewee, right? And, <laughs> and Kid Frost, right here. And they're just talking to each other, and I'm right in the middle. <laughs> like I wasn't shit, you know? <laughs> he was the coolest dude, man. Absolutely. You know, that was my, my first time being around, like, real L.A. OGs at that time, you know? Yeah. And uh, I just, just, just from being around them, I learned so much, you know, just for that two hours, you know, just being in the radio station like that. Yeah. Yeah. So that was my personal experience. With <laughs> we didn't do the floors, you know, <laughs> and that's an amazing story. Shout yeah. out to, to Scoop, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. Continue, man. Just continue. Yeah. So um, that was like the, the so the, the hip hop shop eventually became like a, they would, we'd be doing like rap battles. Um, yeah. Cats would come to practice, like rehearse. There'd be like Rock Steady Crew meet, like the first Rock Steady Crew meeting for the West Coast chapter of Rock Steady Crew. I was a member of Rock Steady Crew. Um, I just gotten in at that time. Wow, it was like all you know, it was like a bunch of people from the Bay Area, people from San Diego came up, people from the Bay Area came down, people from New York flew over, and it was like a big meeting. It was like that kind of that kind of thing. It was like like you said, it was like a community center slash uh, specialty <laughs> shop. 
So, you know what I mean? <laughs> so it was like one of those type of things. But like, yeah, man, um, it was a, it was a, it was a crazy, crazy time. And you know, l- let me let me just stop right there, man. And, and I, I got to ask you this because it, it's just very clear to me, even at this point in your converse in the conversation, you're not a professional rapper yet at this point. You know, no, not yet, no. Nah. But so far in this part of your evolution, you've been a graffiti writer. Yeah, you you have you, you're a rapper. You, mm. you were DJ. Mm. You were part of the Rock Steady crew. Mm-hmm. You worked at the hip hop shop. <laughs> you went to twelve different high schools. <laughs> I mean, you're fucking hip hop to your core. I mean, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. That's really extraordinary, man. It was, it was, it was a, it was a very colorful way to come up, man. Like you, you really got a chance to see people and. And when you're in that scene, as you know, you know, being in hip hop, just being a hip hopper yourself, like it's it's creative slash competitive, you know, whether it's a direct head to head competition or whether it's just like trying to outdo, trying to be the best in the room or the best on the track or the best on something. You're always seeing people really pushing the line, really, you know, showing the best version of themselves or trying to show the best version of themselves possible. Is that what drew you in? about it i mean was that what spoke to you about it because as you know as a youth growing up in la you could have gone a million different directions is that what spoke to you to a certain extent i think it was just like the fact that it was just unapologetic raw creativity Mm -hmm. and there was an outlet for it that kind of gave it some kind of structure even though it was a loose structure there's like a loose structure for this wild creative energy and so you know for me it was just an interesting thing to see people like be creative under the gun sometimes literally be creative, sometimes literally under the gun you know what i mean so but be creative in a, in a really uh dynamic environment like that and to see different approaches because one of the other things about hip-hop as you as you know is that originality especially in that at that time like you could be whacked because everybody that at a certain point when they start, you know, no one just jumps in and just immediately is incredible. But to be known as a biter was like one of the worst possible jackets you could wear. You know, like that dude's a biter, like, oh, like, ugh. You, yes, 100 percent. And you, you know what my theory on that was? Because at that time, nobody was making any money. You, know, right. you couldn't really make it. So originality was the only currency that you really had. Absolutely. You're not going to benefit financially from this. I, I don't know how you felt about it, but I know in that yeah. that's kind of what the vibe was, you know. And so what other currency was there besides originality in that era? You know, that it was was kind of how it's retrospect was kind of how it seemed to me. You know what I mean? Exactly. Exactly. And that's what you, and people say they flex, they floss. Like, that's what you flexed and you flossed your originality. You have a certain style. This is my style. Like, this is what I do. And, 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 and you know, to a certain, I'm sure to a certain extent, the Bay too in LA, like the only other people that could come into the scene and make their way were like people that were on that on some thug shit or whatever. Like people, you know, they're like kind of gangsterifying their way through the situation. Like if you you either had to be have incredible talent or you had to be like on some on some thuggery in order to like break through one of these one of these ways where people would pay attention to you, like either for doing something completely unique or doing something really crazy over the top on the other side of the line so like for me i just 
figured out which side of the line it was what felt best for me. You know, we dab- I dabbled on both sides of the line, but this side was the side that I yeah. f- that felt like home. So, and yeah, you're right. Like it wasn't it wasn't about makeup. I mean, people used to brag about things that were in the big picture of things weren't the biggest. You know, nowadays people are you know they read uh, was it the Rob Report or something to figure out things to to brag about. Like oh, I'm pushing G six through the sky or whatever. Like at that time, I was like, yo, I got a Samurai Suzuki or whatever. Like you know, what I mean, cats were like. Right. Cats were like, I got a, you know, a, a, a Volkswagen Scirocco or something. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, cats would be flying. You'd be excited about that. Like, nowadays, it's like Maybox and McLarens. But back in the days, it was like, you know, uh, yeah, you know, it was just well, a different. And then I, the other thing that I think about about that era, is, especially for graph writers, right? You're risking so much, you know, it, just for the ability and the opportunity to express yourself artistically yeah absolutely you're risking going to jail you know you're risking in 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 in, from what you were saying at that time in la going to these other neighborhoods and getting in situations there for sure you are risking so much and the only reward is that you're able to authentically express yourself through art well, the, the extra twist to that is in the graffiti world like okay if you're a b-boy b-girl if you're a dj if you're an mc you want people to know you like you want to stand out there. You want to be seen. You want to be known because that's again, like that 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 awareness of who you are is where you got like, OK, people respect me. They respect my style. You know, I walk into a club. I get to skip the line and people, you know, whatever girls are looking at as a graffiti artist. You didn't want people to know who you were. Mm-hmm. So you had to do all that. And the work itself had to speak for you because people knowing who you are, is, you know, you end up in jail like that. Like, you know, like that's how you end up in jail. So most graffiti artists they know each other. We would get together and have like, you know, at this, at this yard or, or at the writer's bench or, you know, we had like a writer's bench on Olympic and fair. There was one in Hollywood back in the days. Mm-hmm. But I remember like when, as I was getting, getting older, like the main bench was like Olympic and Fairfax at Carl's Jr. Okay. <laughs> so it was like the, it was like a major bus stop. So buses would pull up 20 people would rush the side of the bus, blah, blah, blah. But it got to the point where they just started putting like undercover cops in the Carl's Jr. <laughs> it was just ridiculous at a time. But yeah, man, it was like down the street from my crib, like the five four or five blocks from my crib. So I'll be there all the time. Well, I mean, but the, and that's why that's why Graph Writers has so much mystique. You only knew the names. You only knew the name, yeah, and the name and the style. And that was and that had to carry. And there are people that be fronting too, like, yeah, that's me. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh yeah, you know, excuse me, front, because no one knew. No one knew what they looked like. And when you the crazy thing was when you would get together and have like a um a crew meeting or there'd be like a graffiti convention or like some kind of get together, different people would come together. And once everyone realized, okay, we're in a, we're in a cool space. Everyone's cool. You start finding out who's who. It's like, that's you. Like, Oh shit. You have a crew where it'd be like a crip, a blood, a cholo, like a sharp, like a, a sharp skinhead. Yeah. Like a Rasta. You know what I'm saying? It'd be all in the same crew together. <laughs> like it's like, but if you think about it, that's kind of what dilated was to I mean, a certain extent. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's kind of fast forward a little bit because that's the tradition that you're coming out of. You're coming out of this kind of, uh, you know, graffiti, rapping, Rocksteady crew, hip-hop shop. Right. Background. You know what I mean? You meet Ev doing graph. Was he rapping at that time or producing? I didn't know that he was. Okay. He wasn't producing yet, for sure. He was rapping. He was rapping. Ev used to have a... You know, Ev's first rap partner was Will I Am. So, like, he was... And at the time, he was Will 1X. Yeah, and and then Ev also used to have a group by him. It was a group by himself called Evidence and His Invisible Friends. 
<laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, it was, I liked, I was like, I like this kid, man. I don't know who this kid is, but I like this dude, man. Um, but yeah, Ev was, Ev was rapping a little bit, but I didn't know he was rapping at the time. But by the time we met again at the hip hop shop, like maybe like a year later, he was up there with the dude that I knew, a kid named Fremont, um, self, Thesis 3, so I think it was Thesis 3. He was also from AWR. Uh, he was up there with, with Fremont and, um, Fremont was rapping and I knew Fremont rapped and, and Ev was in there kicking some rhymes. I was like, Oh, let's do raps. But I met him before as a graffiti artist at the yep. motor yard. So, um, but yeah, we met his in graffiti and then he, he was, um, the way we, Ev and I linked really was he was doing a record. He used to live next door to QD three. Yeah. Jones, the son QD three. Yeah. Or like two doors down next door, two doors down, but like on the same block, like either, you know, either in the house or the next house or two houses down. That was that in Venice? In Venice, yeah, in Venice. And um, QD3 was producing a record. So Ev was like, yo, I'm, I want you, you know, I, uh, I'm doing a record this week or some shit like that. Like, I'm doing a record and um, I want you to do a, a guest verse on this record. Yeah. And, uh, and he's like, it's QD3. Quincy Jones' son is producing it. And he played me the beat. I was like, yo, the beat is dope. Like, I'm with it. I'll, I'll jump on it. I didn't, you know, at the time, I didn't, it was like the first record anyone ever invited me to be on. So I'd done like my own like little demos and four tracks and stuff, but I'd never been like, recruited to be a guest vocalist on somebody you know else's thing that wasn't like one of the homies so i was like yeah i'm down what year was this this would have probably been like 92 or 93 also like around that same time like yeah some somewhere around that time and uh so i don't know what happened but some kind of way i don't know if if i did my part early and he just kept it that way or if i'm the only person that showed up i'm not because it was like a bunch of people that were supposed to be on it that were all part of Quincy's Quincy's team um but we ended up doing a one record together and that from that somebody heard it was like yo you guys should do some more stuff and we're like yeah we should so we ended up doing some more records and then that turned into a group and then he and I did like record record deal and we did all kind of stuff together just the two of us before um I was introduced to Babs through I knew I knew um Rhett, Rhett Matic and some of the other cats from uh, Beat Junkies already. Yeah. The world famous Beat Junkies. Got the Rhett Matic. Because they were all down with, with uh, at the time, also with Rocksteady. And we were tied in with the Bay Heavy because of uh, Honey Dip, Knuckle, Knuckle Neck Tribe there, uh, Alex Aquino and them. The Dancers, right? The Knuckle, the knuckle Neck Tribe, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. yep, the, there are three, three of them. Who was, it was Gene Boogie, Preacher, and... I'm, a, I'm horrible with names, but knuckle neck shout out to knuckle neck tribe for sure. Um, and then um, oh, P, P kid, P kid, Gene Boogie and Preach were like the knuckle neck tribe. And then um, Honey Dip, like Leah Maxwell and them, uh, Rocksteady DJs was like the main thing at the time. They were the they were from a group called FM2O, which is like a, the first rap uh, rap rock hybrid group that I'd heard. They were like I think they were called the DJ Shadow. Cubert was in that group. Cubert, Mike, and Apollo. Yeah. Yeah. And then they became Rocksteady DJs. Yes. And then later uh, kind of did the Scratch Pickles thing. But like that, that whole era of things. And then down in San Diego, there was like Top to Bottom Crew, uh, Zodak, Severe, Saki, and like a bunch of people for Cutfather. Like there are a bunch, rest in peace. Yeah. There are a bunch of people that uh, were from uh, from San Diego that were also part of that. So, but yeah, we were tied into the Bay through, through, through that circle of things. So when you're doing these early records with Ev, were you guys a group? at that time did you consider yourselves a group at that time or not when we did the first record but maybe like the second or third song that we did together we considered ourselves a group and was it dilated peoples or nah um i gotta know the name bro the name that we got signed like when we first did it was called fatliners 
fat liners. Yeah, because it was like graffiti artists. We were like, it was like fat, fat cap, like, and then rhyme, and so it's called fat liner. But then what happened was got signed to who? We got signed to Lethal DJ Le- Lethal Dose, like Lethal Dose, and through that through to a mortal to a mortal epic. Okay, stop right there. I did not know this. Did I've known Lethal since elementary school. DJ Lethal, like we went to the same elementary school. Like people from House of Pain. Is what you're talking yeah, about. yeah, yeah. He was a graffiti artist too. Like he was, he was from yeah. That's old school rescue, rescue one. Like no, nah, no. Nah, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't think a lot of people know this, man. I don't think a lot of people know this. So, so you get with Ev, and within a couple records together, you get signed. Well, within a couple records, no, it was probably. It was we were already fatliners. We didn't get signed until maybe like a year, probably like a year or so later, because Lethal was like. It took a uh, year to get signed. Maybe something like that. I don't remember what it was because we were already making. We made some like demos. We were we were hanging out for a while, and then we ended up getting a a, a record deal. It might have been a little bit longer, but it wasn't like a whole lot of because we were already no like we were already both in the scene, like different scenes, but we were already both in the scene, and people knew us as graffiti artists. They knew us. They knew we were making music, and Lethal was like, "Yo, I want to do something with you guys." So, but we had already had like a some other managers situations that didn't go right, and we were making like some just random records. But we ended up hooking up with Lethal, and um, this was when was House of Pain's? They were on their maybe their first because I was already working with Lethal on something too. Because I I remember when 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 Everlast came through with like the hand stitched, like the swap meet stitched House of Pain baseball cap, and like I remember when Jump Around first hit the radio. Like I remember driving home from someplace and hearing Jump Around on the radio for the first time. So we were already cool even back then. So I think I might have even brought it to lethal like yo this is what i'm doing now or something and he heard it and checked it out and like what we were doing but he was like we were talking a lot of graffiti stuff and it, was, it wasn't like a it wasn't like popular at that time to, to do that especially out here a lot of people think california is all the same and this is what's very different about the bay versus yeah. la you want a record deal in the bay you got to create a label <laughs> <laughs> You wanted to deal in the Bay. You had to create your own fucking company and and all that shit, right? In L.A., it seemed like because you're in L.A. and you're in this industry hub, you've got, oh, yeah, I grew up with Lethal. Lethal's got a deal. Oh, his song's on the radio right now. Right, yeah, there's a lot of that. Or the QD3, he's Quincy Jones' son. You have all these different avenues to make it on a larger scale more quickly. You, you know what I mean? I think it's a two-edged sword, though, because I think because of that, everybody, a lot of people have that same access. So in our case, I think it was like we had, a, obviously, we had a different look for that time, especially the, the yeah. look of the group. Uh, what we were talking about, like, Ev was like a skater graffiti dude. I was like more like a, I guess you could say like more of like a hood graffiti dude slash, you know, I was coming heavy out of like, you know, the, the, the really heavy into public enemy boogie down productions and right. like, you know, more, I guess, not a combination of like street knowledge and graffiti art. So the, the, the kind of combination of what we were doing and then the fact that we like the idea of being produced, like we like the idea of like working with people that had the sound we were looking for. We weren't just trying to get on. Yeah. It made it a situation where I think as a producer, Letha was like, this is a unique situation here like we could do something kind of interesting here there were people like freestyle fellowship the whole good life there are people that had crazier chops than we ever had like they could just they could just spit but i think for us the whole package was was something that they felt like they could work with you know our talent was there the look was there the, the subject matter was there um and our network was there so it was just one of those things where everything kind of came together at the right time 
Well, that that's one thing that I've I've always noticed about about Dilated is you guys have a crazy fucking network. You know, like the Rolodex. That, <laughs> seriously, yeah. the Rolodex that you guys have were big heavy hitters in hip. Yeah. You know, especially L.A. hip hop. You know, Lethal at that time. I mean, there was no bigger group at the mo- at the moment than House of Pain. QD3 was huge at that time. You know, right. obviously later on the rep. You know, the, the um, relationship with Alchemist. You know, et cetera. And, yeah, uh, Alchemist was just Ev's best friend. That he was a rapper. He wasn't even a producer either. He was just it was Mudfoot from the Hooligans. You know what I mean? He was just a rapper too. Yeah. You know, we we consider ourselves like. We were Soul Assassins family. We consider ourselves Soul Assassins family. At the same time, we we're also down with Liquid Cruel, with that whole thing. And it was it was it was a lot of that kind of stuff where we we yeah. were cool with a lot of people. And even if we weren't official members of this crew or that crew, we were still like if they were brothers, we were cousins. Like we were always supporting and always getting the support. So we would tour together and everything. And these were gold and platinum artists at the time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I mean, you guys had great relationships. Yeah, absolutely. Because I'm just thinking about this now. I mean, you had a major label deal before Capital, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, we did. So so what happened there? To get us out of that or to get us... So did that album, did the Fatliners album ever come out? No, nah, we ended up, well, we ended up changing the name pretty yeah. much right when we got signed because there was an issue. Um, uh, Russell Simmons' nephew, at the time, Horrorcore was really starting to come for like Grave Diggers and different people like that were coming through. Maybe even a little bit before that, but... Um, Russell Simmons' nephew, or I think it was his nephew, if I'm not mistaken, came out with a group called Flat. They had Flatliners. I remember, yeah. And it was like kind of like a horrorcore, like a hardcore horrorcore kind of group. Right. And so we ended up, it was too close. Like, you know, we just come from the era where it's too close. Like, it's too close. If there's any mistake, we got to do something else. So we ended up changing our name to Dilated Peoples. Actually, Alchemist named us. I had a, I had a company, you know, like my BMI company at the time was called uh, Expanding Pupils. Okay. Which meant like eyes, but also meant growing students, you know, expanding pupils. So Alchemist, we were, we were kind of throwing different names around. And somebody, I think Ev or somebody was like, what about your name? What about expanding pupils? And Alchemist is like, that's dope. But what about dilated pupils? And we were like, yo, that's it. Like, it's so funny because hip hop yeah. in that era was very scientific. Yeah, exactly. Very cerebral. Very oh, it's some kind of like medical scientific <laughs> you gotta do it it's only right anyway yes continue man yeah so that's that's kind of how that worked out um with alchemist we ended up doing he named the group and we we, we recorded an album for immortal records at the time yeah they were having their own issues at the time like they were and and we weren't you know it was early and we didn't know what to expect we thought we were going to get there sign a record deal and be rich you know, it was just going to happen. So once we got there and realized it was all kind of drama and whatnot, label politics, and we figured all that out pretty early, we didn't really have a, um interest in being there anymore. <laughs> so put it that way, like it was, it lost its luster a little bit. And so um, we were trying to figure out like, you know, what to do, you know, how we're going to navigate this. They wanted to keep us, we wanted to go. So I don't know, one day I just got but the album was done. The album was done. The album was done. Yeah, we did it. We did it. Recorded a whole recorded a whole album over there at Immortal. But the situation just it just wasn't a good situation. We weren't happy over there. Um, we were having issues with the people that were running the place. It just turned into a, a kind of a mess. And um, there was a uh, there was a time where I asked I asked our um, our our lawyers and our management to look into what was going on. Yeah. Um, and they're like, nah, it's an ironclad 
contract. You know, you guys are you guys are here. Just tuck in, get comfortable. You're here. And I remember reading something or hearing something someplace that any contract can be, you know, if you find the right angle on it, any contract can be broken. Like if you have the right. So I was like, man, I, let me figure this out. So I took at the time I took the contract. It was like a big, thick ass contract. I took it downtown to the library and just spent the whole day just with a big, you know, like there's regular dictionaries and there's the unabridged dictionary, which has like extra words that aren't in normal, the normal vernacular or whatever. Like, so I ended up getting the unabridged dictionary and just spent, I don't know, maybe like eight or nine hours translating the contract. And I found this thing. I found what I thought might've been a loophole. Like, wait a minute, if this means what I think it means, then we just have to, and it turned out to be a situation where we had, you know, it was like, they had like a, it was a distribution issue and it, it was a it was a kind of a long story, but I figured out like, if this is what I think it is, then this will work. So I brought it to management and our lawyers and I was like, yo, does this mean this? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, drop the paperwork. As they drew up the paperwork, uh, 30 days later, we were off the label and I just fired the manager and fired the lawyer and we just kept it moving. Like that was that. <laughs> That's all I can say. Yeah, you got to read it. So read the contract. <laughs> can, can I ask what was the issue that I found or the issue with the label? What was the loophole? So basically, um, and it's been a long time, so I might be slightly off with this right now, but basically... Immortal had to have major distribution in place. And if they didn't have major distribution in place, then in 30 days, we could send them a letter saying we want to leave the label because they don't have major distribution in place. Yes. And I found out that we were on Immortal. We signed to Immortal Epic and Immortal and Epic had some issues. I remember being in a meeting where they were like, we're no longer distributed by Epic. We're, we're working on getting the final distribution through RCA set up. I think Funk Dubious might have been Immortal RCA and they were starting to move artists from Immortal Epic over to Immortal RCA also. I think Epic might have kept like Incubus or Corn. I don't know. They kept like a rock, some rock groups or something that were on Immortal, but the hip hop, they were like the person and, and the owner of Immortal had a, had some beef and they, they canceled it. So as soon as I found that out, I went and as soon as I saw that in the contract and I asked them, I was like, so if they don't have distribution in the next like four weeks, like f finalized and signed, then we can dip. And they're like, yeah, and they weren't, they didn't seem like they were in any hurry. So they, they were, I didn't see any scrambling going on over there. So I was like, all right, let's, let's see what happens. So I was, I was sitting there watching the clock, like, ooh, ooh, ooh. And then like, I remember like I, they, the day came, I was like, send the letter. We sent the letter and they called me into the office. Like, are you serious? Are you serious? I'm like, I'm dead. Like, we're done. Thank you. Appreciate it. Like, we're out of here. Like, so yeah, that was that. That is the ultimate artist rights flex. Right. <laughs> Because here comes Rocker. I got my contract right here, motherfucker. Takes it to the motherfucking the boys club library. Throws it down on the table. It's like this for eight hours. Exactly. It's created to devastate. It's like, I found something. Yeah. Uh, exactly. And no, you have to get, expand the pupils, man. I expand the pupils. Right. So you get out of the co the contract and you fucking cleaned house. You're like management, lawyer, label, goodbye. That was that. And at that time, um, we started kind of messing around, doing some other little things here and there. And um, Ev's pops actually verify, rest in peace, his pops passed away recently, but he he actually loaned us the money to put to do our first 12 inch like the uh, our first 12 inch that we did he gave us the money to like mix it and master it and, and to get all that stuff together so 
we kind of did it backwards. Like we had a record deal and then went back and created our own platform and put out our own records. Did the deal with ABB, you know, did the, the start doing stuff with, you know, Benny B. People thought we were from Oakland for the longest time. We spent a good amount of time up there going back and forth. And because our label was up there and when they would look at the back of the record, it would say like it would have the ABB address in Oakland. So people are like, yeah, Bay Area. Bay Area standouts, dilated people. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We're like, all right, whatever. It's all love. Number to drive up to five. It's all love. We got to talk about Benny B and ABB Records here because I don't think that you can understate the importance of ABB Records in independent underground hip hop history. You know, right. and just the groups that that came out of that of that stable from yourselves, little brother. Yeah. No, uh, Defari. Farai was there. Yeah, yeah. Joey Chavez. There's a bunch of people that. It was its own movement. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Because that's that's how I first heard of y'all. Okay. You know, because we had a Quantum at the time. You know, we were probably on. I think it was Quantum Spectrum. You know, somewhere around there, like just after the Latirix album, and we we put out Blackalicious was about to come out with Nia, and you know there was this whole independent renaissance right happening, particularly in the Bay Area at that time. And we had this, the Quantum office was in this this big building in downtown Oakland, and in that building was also Hyro had their office. Ah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Karen Deer from the Giant Peach had her office there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Benny B at his office. <laughs> and I remember, and, and he used to go down to the bar down the street, you know, and uh, I would see, and I know I do this impression for you every <laughs> But I would see him there after hours, man, and he'd just have a pint like this, you know, 100% free industry gear. So, you know what I'm saying? Like, he'd have a, like a Def Jam you know, starter jacket <laughs> with like, you know, a King T t-shirt on. The motherfucking um I don't know, like some 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 epic record sweat, you know. <laughs> and he goes, Yo, LB. <laughs> you know, got his beer right here, man. <laughs> he was like, I just signed this group dilated, man. <laughs> Evidence and rocker. <laughs> and then, and he gave me the record. I think the first record he gave me was, um, I don't think it was Work the Angles. It was something. Remember third degree with uh, Guaranteed and yeah. uh, Global Dynamics. That was the first one. We, and then the second one was the Work the Angles 12 inch. Yeah. And I remember taking those records home and I was like, huh. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I said before I heard him. That's yeah, yeah. And I, I was like, because, you know, we were all very competitive at that time. Yeah, yeah. As artists and as labels, you know. Yeah. And I took him home and I listened to him and I was like, we got some fucking work to do. <laughs> that damn Benny B. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know how that hooked up. I think that was through Defari. I, mean, I think Defari was the first one. And then he brought in Ev to work with him on his project. And then Ev was like, yo, this guy, Benny B from ABB Records wants to put out our, our stuff. And he's, you know, he, he has some connections in the industry. You know, I was all about who, who's he know? What's he going to do? How's it going to work? You know, for us, we were like, and at the time, too, it's like we were making records for DJ. We were making records that a DJ would have to play. Like, it was just, bam, like, just like we put scratch kits on our records and we were doing all kind of stuff, like playing dirty. We were playing dirty. <laughs> and the thing about y'all that was really, I think, unique among that peer group uh, and, and also among the independent releases that were coming out 
of the Bay Area is you guys, the, the music that you were making was very compatible with New York hip hop at the time. You know? Yeah, I mean? absolutely. Like our records, just by contrast, I think people thought were great records, but they were more art record, you know, like, yeah. like they weren't necessarily DJ friendly. Yeah. And I think it was when, 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 we heard those records and when people heard those dilator records, I think that's what people loved about it was that it, yes, it was West coast and it was independent and all that kind right. of, but it was, it, it had this sort of New York spirit to it at the time, yeah. you know, like that e kind of an East coast spirit that made yeah. it, it made it very palatable to people. I think. Yeah. We were very much like into the idea of being like, traditional like cutting edge traditionalists like we wanted to take like a traditional boom back sound like the stuff that made us want to rap like like the stuff i was listening to i wanted to do like that but still be true to to myself i wanted us to still be true to ourselves and like when i met ev like his favorite group was like i was a big boogie i was heavy into boogie down productions and Kooji rap and yeah. people like that at the time he was heavy into uh not when i first met him but like you know when he when he first started we started kind of really doing our thing he was heavy into um high row and far side so he was like a, a, kind of a new school and i was more into like you know i guess it's not really old school but like an older school of of flow so it was like a an interesting mixture and then also a big part of who we were you know we were really rolling with was a lot of skaters so we were around a lot of punk rockers and a lot of people that like hardcore shit like then but still wanted to have fun so we wanted to make hardcore shit that you could have fun to and that was kind of our approach i would that's it i wouldn't have known i wouldn't have known that that's really it yeah. yeah a lot of skaters like growing up in venice like there was a lot of that around uh just you know block was a big part you know the homie big block I don't know if you know Block from Venice, the mayor of Venice, but like he's a heavy photographer, uh, surfer, skater, like knockout artist. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like he was like <laughs> being down with like soul assassins and yeah. and all that stuff. We were like heavy, heavily influenced by Cypress and House of Pain and Funk Doobies, like Mugs of Sound and you know, just that the stuff that was coming out of that camp was 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 and then the licks also liquid crew, even though they're from Ohio and California style, they were spitters. Like they were they were like some spitters. So like that's kinda like and when we listen to y'all the crazy thing though to the uh, the flip side of that is when we listen to y'all, we're like, damn, these dudes are so ill. Like how do they even think of doing like what do they even what's the process? Like, you know what I mean? It's almost like on some level it seemed very advanced, you know, beyond what was going on. That's because it was. Said, that's because we just, as a matter of fact, you're very astute because, see the thing about it. <laughs> No, I'm, I'm fucking with you. But I, I think that um, what made what you guys do so special also in that context is because it was not Freestyle Fellowship. Yeah. It was not Quantum. Right. It was not Jurassic Five. Yes, there were similarities to like Liquid Crew or in the independent sphere. It was not those people that were that I just mentioned. And I think that's what made it, you know, stand out. It's like, you know, you weren't, you know, we talked about Spoon, Spoon I yeah. I mean, you guys were not going to come up. You're like, buttering, buttering, buttering. Yeah. And, and I think that that lane was really awesome for for us but yeah. I think it was really awesome also for all the the sort of la and west coast hip-hop fans that loved east coast hip-hop and they're and right. which, which is basically all of us yeah yeah so let, let's talk about this then so so here you are on abb records all right you put you put two 12 inches out work the angles drops 
Yeah, that was crazy. And that seemed to me like that just changed the entire trajectory of your careers. Yeah, that was a crazy record. Like that we didn't that was when we didn't really Sometimes you get a sense like, oh, this is going to be the one. Oh, this is a beautiful. And then people don't take to it, but then they take to something completely different. Like, I mean, we were doing a Unity, rest in peace, Bigger B. I remember the first time we did Unity, it was not too long after Work the Angles dropped. So we weren't headlining. I I don't even know who was headlining, but I I don't mean, I'm not even sure who was headlining, but we were performing. And we were like, we didn't know if anyone was even going to know our music at all, really. Like outside of our circle of people, this is like a, a paid show in downtown LA with like, open to like the hip hop masses, you know, like wh- whoever wanted to come. As soon as that, as soon as that song came on, it, that was the, like, it, it went crazy, man. Like we made security earn their money then like the slam pitch jumped off. It was like, the, they had to stop the show. Like, yo, 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 calm it down. Like we can't have any problems. Yeah. And we were like, oh shit, this is connecting. Like we didn't even really realize that it had like really touched people like that. And so that show, I mean, for me at least that show, let me know like, yo, this is beyond what we're doing like this isn't about like the results of just like we do this and then this person likes it we do this this person likes it this was like already beyond us it caught on and it was was what it was what was it like instant fire or was it a slow burn or was it it's hard to say i I mean it's hard to say It, it was it was uh i think it took off pretty quick. Like, you know, like at this point, it, it seems instant right now because yeah, I have all this time to reflect back on it. Yeah. But it was pretty, it happened pretty fast. Like from the time we put it out until the, we did that show and we started realizing people in other places, they start, all of a sudden people started calling trying to book shows and, and we we're like, you want to book? All right. Like we, we, it just wasn't like, and again, like we're coming from a different era. Like we were talking about where money, people aren't really making a lot of bread unless you, yes. you get like a certain pop stardom or whatever. So I was like, okay, I guess this is how it's supposed to go. Like, I don't know. Um, but yeah, we started doing shows and that, that became like the, the last song to perform in the night. You know, like the, when that ca- song came on the crowd, ah, you know, like that kind of thing. We're like, okay. I ne- I usually never back up, but we didn't, we never discussed how Babu came into the fold. Ah, yeah, yeah. So, um, Babu, I have a homie, I have a homie named Chet, Ill Brother. There was a group called Ill Brothers and they were from, they're from, from Cali and there's some friends of mine. And, uh, I known, I had already known the Beat Junkies through, through Rocksteady at the time. So like Red and J-Rock and Melody, like a bunch of, most of the Beat Junkies, you know, Ice and, Everybody, I, just, I knew the Beat Junkies already. Babs wasn't in the Beat Junkies yet. Babs eventually got into the Beat Junkies. And um, first of all, I love Babu, by the way, man. He's like one of the best dudes. You, you know what I'm saying? Excellent person, man. Great dude, man. A, a great fucking guy, man. Yeah, hilarious. You know what I mean? Just a funny, good dude. Like, a really funny sense of humor. Funny dude, man. Yeah, but anyway, go ahead, man. So uh, he had a tape, he had a tape called Comprehension. Like it was like a, a DJ tape called Comprehension. And I heard it. My man G Wiz was playing it in his car. And I was like, yo, what's that? He's like, that's this DJ named DJ Babu. He's from Ventura County. He was like uh, maybe an hour from LA. And I was like, yo, that's crazy. Like, that's ill. Like, this comprehension tape is ill. Yeah. So a little bit later, I was with talking to my boy Chet. And, he, and I was like, yo, what's up with this dude, Babu? Man, you heard of Babu? He's like, yeah, man, he's crazy. So I he was on my radar and he was uh working already at i think he had already he had just started working at uh i went i went with chad over to his parent to babu's house when he was still living with his folks because i remember like being in his room like we were smoking weed blowing it out the window so his folks wouldn't get mad so it was like it was always one of that that era of stuff, <laughs> stuff but, <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. Okay, go ahead. So we ended up, and then Babs ended up moving to LA to work at Fat Beats. And that's when he we started being in the circle a lot. And then we invited him to do the um to do the cuts on the crazy thing is Revolution did the cuts on Work the Angles. I remember, yeah. Because Babs was like it was right when he was first getting into the group. Yeah. So he was like, he was he had other things to do. We were like, come to the studio, we gotta record some cuts. And he's like, Oh, I'll try to get down there. So he didn't so, make it. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, he didn't make it. So Rev did the cuts for us. And and it was funny. I still beg, like every every night for years, Babs has to do like Rev's cuts on stage because he didn't show up at the studio session to do his own cut. Two things, man. So so Babs came into, he came into the folder in the ABB era of, of yeah. people. He came in like right, right after the first 12 inch. He was, okay. he came in. Yeah, yeah. I, I used to love fucking watching him battle DJs. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was the funniest shit. I have like to this because he used to just clown them. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like, Babs, can you fight? Can you fight Babs? Because you had somebody right. to get mad. <laughs> Let me see if I can find some dirt here. <laughs> All right. So, work the angles explodes. Yeah, just fucking explodes. I remember, yeah. and I mean, we were all like these. <laughs> <laughs> some bullshit <laughs> you know as as an indie hip-hop record it's hard yeah. to get a big record yeah know? yeah for sure and then next thing i knew i still started hearing these rumors dilate is about to get signed you hear this shit dilate is yeah dilate is about to get signed <laughs> after hours at the office man <laughs> <laughs> So that's again my Benny B. <laughs> a great one, by the way. Right, thank you. I've had a lot of years of practice. <laughs> exactly. You don't even need that much time. Like you just get one good conversation. <laughs> so walk me through that. How did that go? From work the angles to what would be your major label deal? Yeah, we did work the angles. Then we did a remix. Uh, called Rework the Angles, mm -hmm. uh, which had like AG from Showbiz and AG. It had Exhibit, uh, Defari, us, of course, on it. But in that, like, it was just, it was one of those records that, you know, in the underground scene, like we were getting respect on the East Coast, in the Midwest, Chicago, whatever it was, we were getting respect out the, in, in those places, of course, in California. So we started doing more, more and more shows. And then next thing you know, we were doing things like, selling out the um the whiskey or like selling out clubs in hollywood i remember like rick rubin going into fat beats to buy our records the dust brothers actually offered us our first record deal wow the dust brothers yeah they, they offered us a record deal first when they were when they had their record labeled through disney and the numbers just weren't right so and, and also just so people know the dust brothers are the producers that produced beck they did yeah. teak yeah, exactly. I mean, just so many legendary hip hop and hip hop inspired albums. And I was a big fan of them because I feel I felt like what we didn't have was that that avant garde art. Like we need, you know, like and maybe that was going to be something that needed to be because we were still like we had like a very punk rock approach to making it. Like yeah. we were just got there, just raw energy, jumping across whatever. Like that's the people liked it. We like doing it, and yeah. it was this how it went. With the Dust Brothers, they were you know we went in there into their crib and they had like live instrumentation set up against the walls and old amps and all kind of stuff like that where they were really i thought they were going to really be able to bring out some of the some some different levels of creativity kind of like the difference between like 
Paul's I mean, between um, License to Ill, then you go into Paul's Boutique and you have like like different layers and different vibes or whatever. So they made you guys an offer. Dialect. Yeah, they made us they made us an offer. They put contracts in front of, but it just wasn't you know it wasn't what what we were looking for. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't it didn't have, we weren't speaking the same language. But they're great people. We didn't uh, do that deal, but we we stayed tight with them. And um, so it was a lot of stuff was happening around the same time. We were get we were meeting with everybody like flying out to New York, met with Tommy Boy and met with Jive and met with Atlantic and met with whoever in the States. We were, we were I mean, in, uh, in Cali, we were meeting with uh, Interscope. We met with them a few times. Capital, of course. What labels put deals on the table for y'all? Besides the Dust Brothers, I think Tommy Boy put a deal on the table. Tommy Boy, Interscope put a deal on the table and Capital put a deal on the table. If I remember, there might've been somebody else too, but if I remember correctly, those were the three that, that stepped up and were like, yo, we like this. Dilated Peoples, what was this, like 99, 2000? No, this would have been like 98. 98, okay. Because our first, the platform came out in 2000. So Dilated Peoples had four major label deals on the table at that time. Yeah, yeah, we had a bidding war going on. So... Um, at the time, we, we, did, we, we didn't like what Tommy Boy was coming with. Um, and I forget who the other person was. Wh whatever the other deal was, besides Dust, oh, Dust Brothers, we didn't like what they were coming with. Tommy Boy, we didn't like what they were coming with. Yeah. It came down to Interscope and Capital. Um, we met with Jimmy Iovine, Tom Wally, Ted Fields multiple times. The Interscope offices, they did the whole walkthroughs. And, they, you know, it was kind of like they were opposite kind of labels. Interscope was like a big rap machine like they had uh, you know they were still on death row money they had a lot of stuff going on over there at interscope they had a whole s section downstairs where they had like all the small indie all the smaller labels that were under interscope were all in like this big loft room that had their own cubicles and it was like this whole thing and then you go to capital and capital was fresh off of basically dismantling their whole hip-hop system like only thing they had really in the in the hip-hop world were the beastie boys and beastie boys had a separate office down the street. They didn't even deal with the tower. So they didn't have anything. And so it was a situation like, do we want to jump into traffic over here and, and try to make this work? Or do we want to go someplace and be the franchise player and kind of be at the forefront of them getting back into the game? So we decided to go on the capital side and, um, and it, it worked out. It worked out well for a while. Like the first, two, the first, the first two projects worked out really well. By the third project, I'm trying to find some dirt. Man. All right, all right. You see me skipping quick. I'm skipping quick. <laughs> How much did Dilated get signed for? Because people need to know context-wise. It was a lot of. It was a good amount of money, man. It was a lot of. It was a. It was a nice number and some zeros and a comma in the right place. Are we talking six figures? Are we? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Are we talking mid six figures? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, for the first album, we had a, we had a multiple album deal, and every album deal, every album was was in that in that zone where it needed to be. What zone are we talking about? <laughs> you said, it was in the mid. It was in that mid area, in that good middle ground of the half a million. I mean, you know, it was it wasn't it wasn't you know they were we were we were in that neighborhood. You know what I mean? It was. What was the ABB counter offer? Uh, <laughs> do it for the culture. I don't know. <laughs> you know what I'm I don't know. It wasn't. It wasn't. We can do this together. Like together, we can make a mark. And I don't know. I don't really know, man. Well, here's the thing, though. When we did the deal with Capital, part of the deal with Capital was also that we could still put out our vinyl through ABB. 
And at the time, ABB was only doing vinyl for dilated. We yeah. never put out like CDs or anything. So yeah. we're like, we're going to keep doing our vinyl, which you've been. He was like, all right, cool. Like he was happy at the time. So Okay. So, so let me ask you this, right? Okay. Because I mean, that's obviously going to be a conversation though, right? Because you're leaving this, this small independent, right? For a deal that nobody's going to turn down. Right. You know, it's the next logical progression for you guys as a group. Obviously, this is a story that's happened many times in independent yeah. music history, you know? Right. What were those initial conversations like when you're here and you have to leave this label? You know what I mean? Uh, it, to be honest, it wasn't that like it wasn't that difficult because it was a it was a compart we were already just doing vinyl with ABB. Like we had never done like an album with A with Ben. We had never put out CDs with him. We had never like other groups had done more things in that in that vein with him but for us it was always and so when we moved on it was like all right so now we can put out the album vinyl we can put out more single vinyl like we're gonna now now the vinyl that we put out is gonna get promoted by mtv or bet or yeah. whatever it is so you're gonna sell more of it than you know like i'm sure he was disappointed because in his mind he but uh, you know I, I asked him i'm like is your is your distribution in place like what what can you put on the table he's like nah but i Basically, his thing was like, I'm working on it. And it was like, well, well all right, well, then we're going to move. Like, you know, we'll keep the vinyl over here. So it wasn't like, you know, you went back to the Boys and Girls Club. Like, <laughs> nah, we didn't No, We didn't have it wasn't even a deal. Like we just had a, a we had a handshake relationship. Like it wasn't we didn't have to. There was no paperwork to. OK. To, yeah. Every time we did it, he's like, let's do it again. Like, all right, let's do another 12 inch. Like it was it was very like like a very comfortable homey kind of situation. We didn't have anything that we had to like navigate from a legal standpoint. It was just more of, you know, if he, if Ben had been ready, if, if ABB had had their distribution in place and whatever, then we would have, I mean, the splits were way better at ABB. <laughs> you know <what> I'm saying? <laughs> the splits were way better. He didn't have it set up yet. And I think he was at the time that we got our deal, he was like kind of maneuvering to get some, some, some things done yeah. based on you know kind of his involvement in our project which kind of opened up things for other people and, and opened up like the opportunities for like little brother and people like that to put out full projects yeah. over there so and we still stayed down we didn't there was nothing negative said and we still kept all of our vinyl over there we still did things that we could but he wasn't he wasn't set up to do it and we weren't in the position we weren't at a point in our lives where we were comfortable being like you know guinea pigs for somebody to try to figure out something on the fly real quick like if it wasn't already done and you see all this other stuff happening and you're not lining up your situation to, 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 to make it work, then, you know, we get these vinyl, get this vinyl pressed up and let's make it happen that way. So it wasn't a situation where you had to sit there for eight hours. No, no, no. That well, see. That's now every conversation I had to sit there for eight hours. <laughs> you be like, hey, Ben, how's it going? Well, you know, it's uh, you know, it's uh, <laughs> you know saying? like it was going to be eight hours, but it just wasn't a negative oh, eight hour conversation. I completely understand. I have had <laughs> of the most incredible, but long conversations with Benny B about. Everything. Yeah, yeah. He's giving me marital advice. <laughs> He's giving me life advice. <laughs> cooking advice. <laughs> musical advice. Again, I got to go back and say this, man. I mean, he's a very fucking smart dude. It cannot be understated 
the impact that Benny B and ABB Records has had on underground independent. Absolutely. I could never take anything away from them. Just groups that had so much impact on our lives. You yeah, know? yeah. Absolutely. And, and he was very smart, I thought, in finding his niche, which was vinyl. He had his lane and he did it extremely well, you know? And yeah, I think it was, I think the issue there was that he had a lot of things going on. He was, uh, he was juggling a lot himself and it was, he wasn't fixed at the time, at least on like moving to the next phase of things. Like he was building up what he was doing and it wasn't until the other, till he saw that maybe there were other opportunities for us and that he tried to kind of pivot to that direction a little bit, but he, he still had all these responsibilities doing what he was really known for, which were these, his vinyl, like, and, and then Bay Area Hip Hop Coalition, this other stuff that he had going on at the time. And so, like I said, like, I mean, I would never take anything away from Benny B, like he, what he did to, to build, you know, because this is at the time where you had to get on the phone with buyers and you had to have relationships and connections and, and really get things moving. And he really did build a lot of bridges. Um, and, you know, I, I appreciate it still. I haven't seen him in him. Last time I saw Ben was at the, uh, maybe two, two or three years ago at the High Road Day when we were performing, we were performing at High Road Day and the damn people were climbed up on the roof of the building next to the stage and the roof collapsed. Cause assuming people, it was a wild situation, but, um, I really miss him, man, to be honest. Yeah. I really miss him. I haven't seen him in a long time. And every, every yeah. time I would run into him, you know, you got to set some time aside, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Tuck in. Yeah. Get ready. I, I really miss those conversations, man. I, you know, and maybe he's somebody that, that, that I can get on mobile homies because there's so much history there, not just with y'all, but with so many other groups. Sure, sure, yeah, for sure. And in the Bay Area in general, man. You know? Yeah, no, he's a he's a serious player and he's um um in our story. Like he did a lot for for us. Um and even for Ev Solo. Like he did a lot of stuff with Ev Solo. I think the first evidence album, solo album might have come out on ABB Records. I could be wrong. I think the second one came out on Rhyme Sayers, but I think maybe or at least it's, I know his early work. I know he was doing 12 inches and producing a lot of different people. And so, you know, he, he was a big part of, of what it is, you know, business is a funny thing. And, um, I don't really have a, I don't really deal with the gray area of it too much. You know, like it's, yeah, like so, like. Oh, when they, when and they, how are you gonna tell me that when you went to fucking study a contract for nine hours in the library? Yeah, that's what I'm just saying. Like, it, I don't deal with the gray. Like when it's when someone said it was time to get out the contract, it's time to get out the contract, and I'm gonna figure a way out the contract. Like, I'm not gonna just linger here because somebody else told me that I gotta be here. Like, I'm I'm a re I'm a, I'm at least go through it with this unabridged dictionary and find out for myself if if I'm stuck or not. Like, that's like you being locked in a room and someone's like, there's no way out of this room. And you're like, all right, let me just sit here then. Like, nah, I'm testing windows. I'm testing doors. I'm kicking walls. If there's a way out, I'm going to find it. And if not, then I'll sit down and rest. But you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but I'm going to try first. So, you know, but I don't have any problem with Ben. Like, ben, he was, you know, we always had a, uh, a solid situation. We never did any, you know, I think, uh, like I said, Ev, I think, did a side project. Did I think his first album with Ben, uh, and I think Babu and Defaro, I did the Liquid Junkies album with Ben. I never did a solo project with Benny B. So all of my business was strictly dilated. And, and you know, he grew year after year after year from that, man, which was, you know, and I think a lot of that was, I remember when he was just putting out 12 inches and then he went and put on albums and, you know. And it, right. So I guess I would say, you know, as you transition from this independent situation into this major label situation, you end up doing three albums for Capital. 
right? Did we do three albums? Shit! Now you got see you. But you say something so confidently, you fuck my whole shit up. Let me let me think. <laughs> you be like, right? I'm like, right? No, wait a minute. Hold on a second. You know what? Hold on. Uh, no, we did four albums. We did uh, the platform. We did expansion team. Then we did neighborhood watch, and then 2020. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that we have four albums with Kevin. And then at, at this time, you know, I mean, this is a time period where now suddenly we find ourselves in this era where there's a lot of kind of indie alumni going to major labels that are kind of our friends and our peer group, like Jurassic right. Five and, you know, yourselves and, yeah. and even the indie artists were really big at that time, you know? Right. And, um, what was that like suddenly now finding yourselves major label artists? How did it, life change for you guys at that time? I mean, obviously there were, um, it was, it was more comfortable financially, you know, like there was, there were bigger checks being written. Um, but, we were kind of, we kind of grinded. So it wasn't like on our day to day, it wasn't that much different. It was just a bigger payout. Like there were, you know, we were, we we're getting bigger looks, I guess. Like we would go be doing like, we do the same radio station, but it wouldn't just be the hip hop mix show on, you know, we end up in the middle of the day on a Wednesday at the, at the same radio station. We'd only been like, Oh, this is what it looks like in the daytime. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? It was like that kind of, that kind of thing. Uh, we were doing different kinds of festival tours. Like, so we were touring rock festivals and different, you know, just getting different kind of looks that we weren't necessarily getting, you know, when we were calling the shots ourselves. But as far as our day to day, it was, you know, we were performing and, and you know, we were rapping and, and rocking crowds. So maybe it was an underground hip hop show. Maybe it was a giant rock festival, but, you know, we did it the same either way. And I think that was also one of the things that kind of worked for us was that, we were always bouncing back like on, on, on one day we might be doing a 200 person underground basement party, super grimy sweat dripping off the ceiling, hip hop show, and then get in the, get, jump on a, on a first class flight or something and fly to the other side of the world and go do like rock on ring or something with Megadeth or something and go do like 50,000 people or whatever the number is, you know what I mean? Like, and we would do, that was like, we were constantly always bouncing back and forth between those two worlds yeah. of you know big pop stuff rock stuff touring with d'angelo like we we we, we also got a reputation as a group that could kind of rock any crowd like we could yeah. bring us in and we could rock any crowd bring us so we were like the the cleanup crew like oh so-and-so dropped out the tour called dilated so-and-so dropped out the tour called dilated they knew the the crowd was gonna be mad for about five minutes and then we were rocking and it would be yeah. decent for whoever else was coming on so you know, we were doing wild stuff, man. Like we touring with Rage Against the Machine and Gangstar and all this stuff. And but it was still like the the best times were like touring with the homie. Whether it was you know, uh, uh, I I think the word of mouth tours, which which we which we did with uh, Jurassic Five and Supernatural and uh, the world famous Beat Junkies, those tours were like some of the funnest things because it was like a bunch of the homies that were all kind of experiencing a similar trajectory, you know, where everyone was kind of coming up and like, like, oh, this feels crazy. Like, damn, we're looking at it. Everyone's looking at each other like, oh, shit, we're doing it. We're doing it. So, yeah, you know, we went from like vans to tour buses, but, you know, it was just one of those. Yeah. <laughs> to being like, what year is this Prevo? Is this a van who or a Prevo? What year is this? <laughs> and we used to be like, and we would be like, these motherfuckers are buses. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> we were so I bet I mean I just remember seeing that and being like, man, we're so happy. You know, because it was yeah. like I, I remember looking around, dilated had a deal, Jurassic had a deal, 
Yeah, Interscope. Yeah. Blackalicious had a deal. Shadow had a deal. Yeah. D Trip got a deal. Yeah. And I just remember feeling like, wow, this the whole movement has just elevated. But what we were seeing was that because of what Quantum was doing and certain other crews, like they have such concentrated talent and focus that it was it helped to change the the narrative about the deal being the 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 goal like to sign a deal like nah I, my deal is, that's not necessarily the the goal isn't to sign it you don't have to sign a deal and I, I think the 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 entrepreneurial spirit of the Bay Area was also something that really inspired us so that when there were times we, we you know we were between deals and we were trying to figure out how to do it and the reason we hooked up with the Bay Area company to put out our stuff was because right there was still at that time like. In, in certain people's minds like this the stigma like if you don't have a deal it's because you weren't good enough to get signed and you guys yeah help some of you know especially in the bay but you know like i remember thinking like man these dudes are better than everybody like they don't have to have a deal to be better than everybody and they're they're making probably the same amount of bread like you know if you're if you're worried about how many records you're selling that's one thing but if you're worried about how much bread you're making you're worried about long-term fans you're worried about like these like these dudes are really doing it and that was always inspiring to us to see like people that could really focus put a crew together have a have a complete thought like even the name quantum that was like ill to me you know what i mean like just like just like just it was like man these dudes are really yeah man like i I was always inspired by what was going on up there um and but I think, though, that – thank you for saying that. I think yeah. was the, the point that I was trying to make is that we had elevated. You know, we had, yeah. we had hit a certain point where we were no longer just college radio guys, you know? Right, yeah, absolutely. Playing worldwide tours, you know? You, right. You were playing with Rage Against the Machine. We were starting to be seen in a completely different context, you know what I mean? Right. Perhaps in a way that we are always seen ourselves, right? You know, but now suddenly we were we had arrived to a certain extent. You, you know what I'm saying? Now, yeah. how far we would all take it individually is dependent on a variety of other factors. You know what I mean? Right. And that's one of the things that I think was special about Dilated. Out of all those groups that I just said that had graduated on to major labels, you guys did the most albums on major labels out of anybody that I just said. It's one thing to get signed. It's another thing to get signed succeed and stay signed you know what i mean yeah yeah absolutely. you know black delicious made one album with mca jurassic five did i think three albums with interscope two or three. maybe two or three maybe something like that i think an ep and a, maybe an ep and two albums, something like that but yeah yeah i think shadow may have done three or four albums yeah. you know like formal studio releases yeah z trip one album once we got into the industry and they saw that we weren't necessarily radio bands, it became pretty clear what their objectives were. So I think that's remarkable. And I, and I think I'd like you to speak to that because as a, as a band that, in my opinion, as a group that is not a radio band, you yeah. know I mean, necessarily, not in a classic sense, not, not right. in a typical sense, how is it that you guys were able to continue to re-up within that system that is so sales-based, radio-driven, you know, celebrity-driven. 
I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that, and we spoke on it, on it a little bit earlier, like we networked, like we were always good with people. We had family all over the place. Like we had crews, like we showed a lot of love and we got a lot of love back and we were such big fans of other people's work too, that it was a legit respect. So when we, you know, we were having like these mic, these pockets all over the place. And when it was time to do a record cycle, it wasn't like we had to start over every time. It was like, we just had to activate the, you know, activate the network when it was time to do something. Give me an example there though. Okay. Um, the worst come the worst record, yeah. huge record. Probably are still to this day, our big, we've had other records that maybe have gotten more spins in a certain amount of time, but yeah. that's still the record that people know us for, for the most part. Right. So for that record, like, you know, Alchemist had already moved to New York. Yeah. So we were like, we want to do something with Al. So we went to New York just to pick a beat from Alchemist. We had no idea. This was like a weird beat. Like it was a different time count. It wasn't like a traditional four, four on the one kind of, right. kind of beat. We picked this beat and Premier heard it. And so this person heard it and they were like, yo, that's a killer beat. Like we ended up recording at D and D studios in New York. Like we did a lot of recording at D and D. So we were like the West coast ambassadors or representatives, I guess, for D and D studios in New York, we would go out there and stay all the time. At the time I was heavy into rock steady. I was heavy into Zulu nation. Yeah. So I had a lot of homies from that circle of things, which meant around the world. There was, there was people that were, that considered me fam that I consider family when it was time to like do the record, we recorded it at D and D free. I think I feel like Eddie Sancho and Prem has something to do with the mix. I'm, I'm it could be bad. Eddie Sancho and Prem were like, people were mixing it. Like it was like a whole thing that it became a situation. Like basically I put it this way. We got threatened that if, if by New York, like don't come back out here. If y'all don't drop worse, come to worst. It got, it got to be like that kind of thing. Like we love this record out here. At D. So, we were like, oh, okay. And we just we just kind of networked that way. We're down with the fat with Joe and the whole Fat Beats crew and, and Babu being a Fat Beats employee, yeah. you know, manager of Fat Beats. Yes. We had like great relationships with the buyers and with the promoters, everybody at Fat Beats. So whether it was Eclipse or whether it was Joe, whoever it was, like we were good with them. Uh, one big thing that also really set us apart, and I never take this lightly, maybe one of the biggest things that we did was actually put a well-respected DJ in the group and let him do what he does. Like we didn't say you're just, we're going to pay you just to come do our shows for us and give you a little bread. Like we made him a member of the group. Yeah. We put him on every song, DJ solo records on the, on the albums. He's cutting on every record and who's spinning at that time, who's spinning the records on the, on the mix shows, DJs. When somebody wants to kick a freestyle, a DJ spinning the record for the next person. So our beats were getting burned. Our records were getting burned because people recognize that we we had talent, we could make records, we would do our thing, but also we were representatives of the culture that they loved as well. And so we were getting the support of a good, a big cross-section of people around the world, yeah. especially the support of DJs. We always showed love to DJs and DJs always show love to us. Okay, so everything that you just described never had anything, nothing that you just said. And this is another thing that's really remarkable about dilated peoples. Nothing that you just said touched on any of the markers or the areas where a typical major label would say, well, we had success in this area. We had success in that area. That's what kept us afloat. That's what kept, you know, you don't hear the pop groups on Capitol talking about, you know, we put our DJ first, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but that's what I'm saying. Like, 
it's really interesting that you guys, no pun intended, work those <laughs> Right. And that worked somehow that, you, you know, not somehow. I mean, it, yeah. you just explained why it worked, but yeah. it was a very grassroots approach, you, you know, yeah. within yeah. this corporate structure that sort of allowed you to continue to exist and function and not just survive, but succeed on on a dilated people's level i mean that's really rem- that's rare and then we had you know i mean things certain things lined up like we we did the record with kanye but yeah. it was before his it was even before another yeah a huge record this way and, it was, and john john legend singing the hook on there that was huge. he wasn't he wasn't even he was just legend at the time he didn't have a record deal when he did the record with us he was like i remember kanye coming to town being like yo come to this other studio i got I had some i'm, I'm in town i want to play you guys a new i want to play you the new mix um, I'm in I'm in town working on my new artist um, shopping. You taking him to some record labels. His name is Legend. Like he's a singer. His name is Legend. I was like, all right. So we went in there. Met Met Legend. Turned out to be John Legend. We toured together. We did. It was just. I think the timing of it was right. And the and it. You know, we never just threw money at something to try to get it to work. Like I think it was things just worked out in a, in a genuine sense. I think being real legit fans, being really close to DJ culture that put us maybe a half a step ahead of people who didn't have that access to, to, to see what was coming up and what was popping and all these other things. So I also think it's a, it's knowing you both knowing all three of you actually personally. Right. The other thing about it is, and I, and I think, and I, I, and I can see why your network is so strong is because me knowing the three of you personally, you're like fans at heart. Yeah. You know, yeah, we love it. We love it, man. We love it. I mean, I don't I don't think of, you know, evidence, Raka and Babu. I don't think of guys as like fucking superstar egomaniacs. Yeah. I don't I don't think of you guys like that, you know. And now that I know that, OK, this is my history. This is what we come from. It's all very like kind of salt of the earth, grass, grassroots, hip hop history. Yeah, no, absolutely. 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 I think that's like, like for us, like when we, when we toured together, I went on tour with you and with uh, Charlie and house of like, I was I'll open, I open for you on that tour. Like every yeah. night, like it was like, you know, so to me, you have to love what it is. Like if you love being the headliner, if you love the spotlight, like that's a problem. But if you, you know, like you're chasing ghosts at that point, but if you love being on stage, if you love making music, if you love the camaraderie and touring and rocking crowds and, you know, me asking you how you ended up with a Jerry curl and explain your genealogy to me. Like if I'm, if we're having these conversations, <laughs> we're, having, we're having these conversations. Like, look, I know we're both Asian mixed, but. <laughs> that is also on my list. Uh, okay. But before we go any further, I mean, you worked it with Kanye at a time when he was just starting to bubble. I mean, he wasn't the con- he wasn't the billionaire Kanye West that we know now. Yeah, he didn't, his first album, like we were in the studio, and he was playing us the like the early rough edit of the Through the Wire video on his laptop because it wasn't even ready to go yet when we were recording this this way. So he hadn't even put out his first album. Yeah, and and what was that like? Did did you did you see the Kanye that was to come working with him in the? Like that. Honestly, yeah. I mean, I didn't know. I mean, I I wouldn't say like the start, like the level of stardom, but definitely the approach. You know, yeah. his 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 uh his approach to making music, yeah, was yeah was unapologetic even at that point. How so? 
he went in there and said what he needed to say. And if he didn't like something, you know, he wasn't going to explain to you why he was just going to like Keisha Cole sang the hook on the record first. Wow. He's like, I'm gonna bring Keisha in to sing the hook. We're like, all right. He had a choir and Keisha Cole. And next thing you know, he just pulled Keisha off and put legend on there. And that was that. Like there was no, like there was no sadness or he didn't feel like he needed to over explain the situation. Like if he didn't like a mix, he would tell you right there. I don't like this mix. I'm gonna let this dude finish what he's working on right now, but I'm gonna have somebody else mix it tomorrow. Like stuff, stuff like that. Like, he'd be like, Oh shit. Like, damn, you know, but he was cool. Like we didn't have no problems. He was cool. Like he was, yeah. he was a good dude. Like, and and yeah. I heard that years later, like, I think you told me you guys were playing at Burbati's or something. Is that like, Portland? In Portland. Yeah. yeah. And he came, th- I mean, I, I, you know, I play Burbati's. It's a 400 person getting me. Yeah. The stage is about as big as this iPhone screen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're not around anymore. It was a, it was a legendary hip hop club in Portland. Yeah. Not there anymore. But I think you told me that you know, and this and and at that point, this was stu- this was stadium Kanye, right? I mean, yeah, he was in, he was in town doing the uh, the was it the flashing lights tour or something like that. Him and I think Lupe Fiasco, whatever. Like I think I'm not sure who else. I think him and Lupe and maybe somebody else. But they had a show the same night and. Um, he was real tight with 80. I don't know what their relationship is now. I think they're still cool, but he was real tight with 88 keys and 88 keys. Um, I don't know if he told them we were in town that night or whatever, but Kanye just showed up like him and his, his security and everybody just showed up at everybody's and jumped on and did this way with his live. Like maybe the only, well, since we toured with him, like it had been a, like a couple of years. So like the only time since we were on tour that he, when we were on the tour, we would do it every night. He would bring us back out during his set. And we would go do it every night, but yeah, yeah, it was, it was crazy, amazing. man. That's fucking amazing. Yeah, it, it's it, been a trip. It just it just speaks to your relationships and your yeah. ability to cultivate and keep those relationships. You yeah. know, yeah. I mean, that's really amazing. I mean, it's, what what does he have to gain by coming off stage at a stadium and coming down to you know this little four hundred person club? Exactly. Obviously, there was something there between the two of you, you know what I mean? Between the group, him him and the group, you know what I mean? And also, I think it was a situation where when we made the record, it wasn't like we were, cha- like, to be honest, like, I think the way it worked out was like, it was one of those things we did the we did the album and, and Capital was like, yo, we, we need a we need you to work with. I'm, I'm not sure if we had finished the album or if we were working on the album, but some kind of way they were like, you know, we want to we want you to work with like a big producer you know it's like the that 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 level of the record label conversations and we're like like who and they were like like timberland or like they, they named like a few people like or kanye west we're like the one that just produced for quali like right. just to get by right him we'll pick him we want to work with him like you know what i mean we didn't know it wasn't about how much money he wasn't like a big you know a big superstar producer he, he hadn't even dropped his first solo album yet so he wasn't a, a big solo artist to us he was the one artist that we felt like he would get us because he we know Quali like that was our that's our homie so like you right. know we work with him so many times like we feel like if Kanye is working with Quali then he would get what we're doing and and that basically is why we picked Kanye and we made the record and did all that stuff yes. without him being this big superstar so I think there's also this understanding of the fact that we weren't chasing his celebrity around when we did that record like it was just we we liked his music and we decided to do the record with him rather than you know, a random big artist that we didn't think that we thought was going to give us like a sound just to chase radio. Yeah. Well, I mean, and also, I mean, he was not like we just said, I mean, he was not billionaire Kanye Yeezy yet. Right. He was considered 
a great hip hop producer at that time. Yeah, exactly. He hadn't transcended that level yet. He was still like, you know, he was doing some stuff for Jay-Z. He was doing some things for some bigger people, but he is the thing that, you know, he wasn't the Kanye that everyone knows right now. Like, I mean, he, he was, he's who he is, but I mean, he wasn't, his level of celebrity was, like I said, he hadn't even dropped, you know, the video for Through the Wire yet. So he it was very, very early in his solo his solo brand, his solo career and all that moving in. Yeah. yeah. He took us out on the road. I remember him getting into it with Dame Dash, like, cause he want Dame Dash, like, who you going to take who? You know what I mean? Like, and he, you know, like take it dilated. Like he was looking out for us. He was like, you know, you know, we ended up doing like, you know, not like a big fight or nothing, but it was like a thing. He couldn't understand why he was taking this group from Cali, but we just, Ev ended, Ev ended up producing on his first album. That's right. The Paul Wall song, or I forget which. The, whatever the last was, whatever the last record is when he's talking about, I don't remember what I don't remember the name of the record, but he produced one of the record. Cred, he credited as co-producer of <laughs> one of the records on the. What, what kind of venues were you playing on that tour with Kanye? Hall, like mostly halls. Like we, it wasn't like a stadium tour. It wasn't like that. We were doing like big halls. Like will turn size or yeah, something like that. So, something something along those in the, around that size. Okay, so like. 2,000 person seaters. Yeah, something like that. Okay. Thousand to, something like 1,000 to 2,500, like depending on where we were and, and things like that. Like for, for Chicago, we did, I know one of the, we did the House of Blues in Chicago, but we did two shows. I think we did one show one night and two shows the next night. And we found, they call the Audible, like this one sold out. We're going to take, we're going to finish this show and then, we're going to do another show tonight. And I was like, oh, shit, you could do that? Like, <laughs> Wow. Yeah. So, so Kanye West fought to put dilated peoples on his tour. Yeah. Or, yeah, I think, I, you know, yeah, that's a, I, that's a little bit romantic, but I think that's, I, I like that. I like that. I see you got the pencil in your hand. Like, I like that. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. That's what that yeah he 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 stood up for us when it was when we were being questioned as to you know why we wouldn't take somebody from why they wouldn't he wouldn't take somebody from the team or somebody else to promote he's like no nah, I'm taking them that's who I'm taking and we we did it every night we had the, we brought the jet we did the video near downtown L A like not too far from downtown L A and uh, yeah yeah every, every night we would just come out and, and and rock with them that's amazing man yeah that's, we did good times I mean it's uh, I think. Again, I think one of the hallmarks uh, of you guys' career and, and one of the just sort of the shining characteristics of, of you guys' career are these amazing relationships that you've been able to build. You know, I mean, more so than I think any other group or artist that I've talked to doing this, you know, doing Mobile Homies. It's, uh, you didn't have really big, hooky, radio records you know yeah, a lot of scratches not a lot of right you know, traditional radio hooks no nah, you're right you know but you did you had more major label albums than most major label bands and i think that that's really special man and that's really amazing and i think another thing that i would that me personally and I'm, I'm going to throw this out there. And, you know, I, we don't have too much time left. We've been talking for hours, man. And, you know. <laughs> Call this part one. We'll do it again. Um, you guys were really smart about touring, I felt like. And and the word of mouth tour, if anybody remembers the word of mouth tour with, um, and I want to get to the Greek theater gig that, that we all played. So all right, all right. The, the reunion. Yeah. 
because like I said, man, I mean, I got to do my best to find some dirt somewhere. <laughs> and it's really hard when you're dealing with nice guys. <laughs> but, you know, this, this tour, it, it, it was really smart and important and galvanizing, I think, to see a tour that had, again, all these peers and alumni like Jurassic Five, Dilated Peoples, Supernatural. Was Z-Trip was on a few gigs, I feel like, or something? Or... I feel like he might have been on a couple of the gigs, yeah. No, B-Junkies were, were on. And we, yeah. yeah. So well curated. I f- and or, and just it just felt very organic, you know, and clearly everybody was friends. And I think it also showed the world how powerful this movement was as a touring entity, you know, yeah. as a touring phenomenon. And, I, and I, that's the one thing that I give particularly West Coast indie-ish hip hop groups a lot of credit for is tour savvy, you know, because... We all toured our asses off. Yeah, for sure. Road Warriors. Still continue to. Yeah. Not right now. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I I thought that that was a really iconic and important moment in in our history was was that tour, was the word of mouth tour. Yeah. How did that come about? The original one? Yeah. We were all managed by um, a cat named Dan Dalton, who manages uh, Damian Jr. Gong Marley right now, and he does the, um, the reggae the reggae cruises and whatnot. But uh, yeah. Danny Danny was managing Jurassic 5 for a long time, and he ended up managing Dilated, and I believe he was also managing Supernatural and, and Beat Junkies at the time, too. So um, I just remember being in the studio when um, Jurassic 5 was working on Power and Numbers. I don't, I don't remember what album it was, but one of the, one of the mastering sessions... I yeah. stopped by the J5 studio and Dan was there and Danny and Charlie Tuna and I ended up sitting down and started talking about, you know, getting everybody together. That's how I remember it. Everyone getting together and doing some stuff. And remind me to bring up a uh, tour conceptualization with Charlie Tuna. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was, but that was basically how it happened. And we ended up booking, um, we all jumped on a bus together. It was like a, I think it was like a 16 sleeper bus. It was like 18 people, <laughs> something on a 16 sleeper bus. And we just went across the states into Canada, did some Canadian shows, but mostly just crisscrossed the states yeah. for like what a, to a month and a half, two months or something like that. And that was Word of Mouth One. Yeah. And then about a year, year and a half later, we did Word of Mouth Two, where we all went out and we had our own buses and our own thing. And it was a bigger. By that time, I think everyone had deals, and yeah. it was we we're all in a bigger place. But we still did the same thing. Like we would go out and just do it every night and that was yeah it was it was a great time man like that, that you know when you go on tour with somebody you develop a different kind of bond like going to war with somebody or something like that you develop a certain kind of bond and so yeah it was it was a great time and you know to this day i you know i still consider those cats all, all the all of the above to be family so yeah and and by the time the last word of mouth tour happened venue size i mean what what were you guys playing uh, the original run uh, so the first one we were doing just small clubs by the second one uh, we were doing, where are we, where are we, I don't know, probably like still like thousand, fifteen hundred seaters or something like that. Like something around those, around that size. It wasn't, sometimes we would do two nights, but it would kind of depend on, on where we were going. We were doing, so, we were also crisscrossing with a bunch of other tours at that time. So I'm trying to remember who we were on stage with, but the last word of mouth, which was kind of like a, uh, the return of word of mouth or something we did, I think it was 2000. 
14 or something like that. That's when we did the, the quantum, the, the quantum word of mouth quantum party. It was in a Berkeley at the, at the amphitheater or something. At the Greek theater, the Greek theater. Yeah. The Greek theater in Berkeley. Yeah. I want to talk about this. All right. (laughs) First of all, I want to talk about Charlie tuna conceptualization of touring (laughs) with Charles Stewart. (laughs) Every time I would see tuna and we talk about a tour, he was like, let's put it together and brand it. <laughs> and that's when we did the Deadliest Catch tour. That was that was so much fun, man. We had a blast on that tour, for sure. It, that it was, was great times. It was Rocka, Gifty Gap, Charlie Tuna, of course. No, Gap, was Gap there? Gap was on it. Me. Yeah, and I think that was it. It was the four of us. Yeah, and Gab was on it. You don't remember that? I don't remember Gab being there. That's crazy. I remember you, because... You had the whole bit. Ba- you had like the whole van loaded, the whole squad with you. So I was, I, the, I was in the Charlie Tuna van, the the Sprinter, and I was. Oh, the- oh, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, right. okay, okay, okay. And uh, man, we had so much fun. But but I I learned he, he, Tuna told me a lot of those like the ideas behind word of mouth and right. Yeah, it was really interesting, man, and it was really cool to hear. So fast forward. I don't know, maybe 10 years, I guess. Mm. That's 2014 that we played the Greek theater. So I got a call from um, uh, my good friend, Alan Scott, is one of the principals at at Another Planet, right? Like the biggest indie promoter Mm -hmm. out out here in the Bay Area. They do uh, outside lands and, you know, they book the independent and all these other clubs out here. So he calls me up and he goes, what do you think about, you know, because Jurassic had gotten back together and they were doing big, big, bigger than ever gigs again. He says, what do you think about getting quantum together? And we'll do, we'll do, we'll, we'll do quantum and Jurassic five mm. Greek theater. Right. Mm. Cause they booked the Greek theater. They booked that gig. Okay. Right? So Alan hit me up about that. And I was like, sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> so I just remember calling or, or being on the phone with X and Shadow and Latif and Gab. And mind you, we had not been on stage together in many years. Uh. You know what I mean? And um, it wasn't easy, you know, for us to get that that show together. Yeah. Um, it it for, uh, On a variety of levels, it was not yeah. easy, you know. But we did it. And Dilated, I heard later, was on the bill. I'm not sure the order in which everything came together. Yeah. I don't remember, but ultimately at the Greek theater, it was a legendary show. It sold out. It was Jurassic five quantum dilated peoples. And I think Supernat again, you know what I mean? So it was almost kind of see that that, it was almost some drama because therein lies the dirt. (laughs) All right, here we go. It was almost some drama because what happened was J five, their tour manager, I don't forget his name, is the, uh, he was uh, very J5-centric. Even though he's supposed to be managing the tour, he was definitely their tour manager. Okay. Um, and so because of the amount of artists that were performing, because obviously this is the, ba- you know, Quantum anyway, but Quantum in Berkeley, like, you know, there's no sh- shorts that could be taken there. So we had a set. And basically, they came to us at the last minute, like right when we got there, we got there, we're ready to go in. They're like, Supernatural, you're not performing tonight. Dilated, your set is now 
35 30 minutes or something like that yes j5 is staying the same as it is and quantum is is, is doing an, an hour hour and a half whatever the the quantum set was going to be yeah. we're like what what are you talking about how, how are you not, not letting that perform <laughs> like that's ridiculous so yeah. what we did was we brought we cut our set even shorter to bring that out during our set yeah so that he could still have a, a performance and they're the like all of a sudden we hear like we see the crowd kind of like we're in the middle of worst come the worst come the worst like where the crowd's usually the craziest and we see everyone looking around and we're like but on stage we're fine we can hear everything on stage yeah what happened was j5's tour manager had the 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 sound cut in the house so all we were going off of was stage sound like all of our monitors so we thought we were still rocking but the crowd was only hearing them so we've like yeah so we basically found out about it like and it turned almost turned into some whole other level of <laughs> shit on the stage with their tour with their tour manager. Can I give you my version? Yeah. I showed up at sound check and something was off. <laughs> I got to sound check, the vibe was off. I and I hadn't seen y'all in a while. Yeah. And I hadn't seen any of the Jurassic Five guys except for Newmark, Cut Chemist, and Tuna. The, okay. Like Mark, Soup. I hadn't seen those guys since maybe the last word of mouth tour. I got you. Yeah, 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 exactly. And Nat was there. I show up. I'm excited. Greek theater's like 10 blocks from my mother's house. <laughs> nice. I get there, motherfuckers like this. Something <laughs> <laughs> was wrong. Something was yeah. off. And, and I'm there with my son. You know, yeah. my son at the time was probably like five uh-huh. or five years old. He's geeked. And uh, I just remember, man, like just the vibe was off, man. And I couldn't figure out why you yeah. know, something was wrong. And, and I come to find out it was some drama with the road manager or some shit. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. He was, he was about to and, catch it. And I, I remember introducing my son to you uh. and introducing my son to Nat. Uh. And just the way he is, he, he comes up and he gives you guys both hugs. Uh. This little five-year-old. <laughs> and I just remember Nat just went like this. He went from this to this. <laughs> you know that big smile? Yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. And it just changed the whole vibe. And and then, so so something was wrong, and I couldn't figure it out. And then in, in, in sound check, I'm talking to somebody. I think I'm talking to Tuna or something. I don't know who I'm talking to. Out of the corner of my ear, I hear a ruckus. <laughs> you know, and I don't know what it was, but I heard a ruckus. You know, here comes Rocker running across the stage. <laughs> like, motherfucking ponytail, horizontal. <laughs> he was running so fast. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and then uh. this, this part is me embellishing. <laughs> Even with the fiery kick, <laughs> I was like, "It's about to go down at the theater." <laughs> and my homie from another planet, the promoter's like, and I saw, and in my mind, of course, my mind, I see the headline the next day in the Oakland Tribune: "These motherfucking rap guys <laughs> <laughs> then tore up the Greek." <laughs> Ah, uh, shit. He was about to catch it, yo. He was about to catch a bad one. He was about to catch a bad one. Like, they wild on the road, man. 
this is what I got into rap music. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, crazy. Yeah, that that all, all of that is true, man. It was about to be a bad situation. And it was all because of him. He didn't have to he he was he was tripping and he was power tripping. And we didn't know him like that. Like I, I don't know. He wasn't our tour, but we had our own tour manager out there. So yeah. uh but he was like the headliners to you know, in his mind. We're like, that's not how we even think of this tour. It's not like we, somebody has to go on last. We can't rap at the same time, but we never thought of it like we're the opening for J5. Like it never came, especially a tour like this, where it's like Quantum is like, yeah. Quantum is here. It's like an anniversary or something. I think it was like an anniversary. I don't remember what it was, but it seemed like it was like some kind of celebration of Quantum or maybe yeah. it was just to get to like a reunion or something, but it seemed like there was something like Quantum is here. J, this is like a party. Why are you tripping, dude? Like it was like, yeah, I'm watching my, my thing turn red. It's about to go out. Like, if it cuts out on you, man, I, I feel bad. I feel bad. I still got a little time, but if it cuts out, I feel bad. Well, you, you know, I think that's that kind of, I, I think we covered a lot, man. We covered a lot. And, and I, I got to say, let's do this again, you know. Let me ask you, how, how does it feel to be, like, the, the only member of the barge that can spit, though? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like... <laughs> That's pretty funny. People do <laughs> rock ass jokes. <laughs> well, it's been a whole tour bagging. Do this. We got to get into a bagging session. <laughs> Let's do it. Rock Let's it. do it. Let's do a part two. Let's do a part two. I, I really appreciate you doing this, man. This has been so much fun for me, and um, you know, I, I really, I, I respect you on so many levels, man. And uh, mutual, brother, mutual. You, you know, I think on that tour. After we played, you know, I'll never forget this. You said something to me that I'll never forget. You said when I got off, you pulled me aside on that on that great theater gig, uh. and you said, "Look, man, you know, you you said this to me. You were like, you know, you do this day in and day out, and you sound like that day in and day out, uh. and a lot of motherfuckers can't do that. That's true. That's one hundred percent true. And I was like." You know, for, I don't know, for some reason, maybe because, again, you know, a road manager had almost got a WWE beat. <laughs> you know? and, and and I know the vibe was just off. Uh, not between us or anything. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. Not of between course. the groups, but to hear, to have that moment of 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 levity, you yeah. know, and po I mean, that, that really meant a lot to me, man. You know what I mean? To yeah. hear that. And I just want to go on record as saying, you you know, I've always, always really respected you and uh, what you've done musically and, uh, and and your journey. And I've always been in admiration of this network and these relationships that you have been able to create. And I'm proud to be among one of those guys. Oh, in, for sure. In that network, you know, yeah, for sure. No, we we we've been we hit the road together, man. We've been out there. We had to, you know, go to war with silence and go to war with with uh, you know ideas and whatever else. Like we've had to hit the road and and go into a place and we're in Wyoming and we're in like these random you know places where I, I don't know, like you know, not to say that Jackson Hole, Wyoming isn't isn't fire when it, you know said, but we had to go into these places together and really do these things, man. Road trip and. And aside from that, just navigating the industry together, you know, um, we're from the same era, the same class. And to see, you know, that we've all been able to really, you know, not just be successful in our own right, but inspire other people to be successful, give other people different types of models to look at for how they can be successful. 
and you know still keep it together too you know keep it together so like you know it's, it's an honor man it's a it's an honor and a privilege you know this has been very very cool and i definitely look forward to doing a part two and you know um yeah, man, it's, 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 a, it's a great thing. It's a great thing that, that you're doing. I've always been a fan. Um, I also think that you need to, you know, have, you need to host some shows and do some other, you know, like some, you need like a TV show or something. You need something else because, you know, you have so much energy and charisma, creativity and presence in, in a way that a lot of people, <laughs> and humility. You hear me? That, I, you know, I really feel like and then, you know, the Bay Area itself being such a diverse place culturally, having such like diverse cultural energy, being such a progressive place. You know, you also represent that well. I mean, you you know, some kind of way you managed to end up with, you know, with like the ability to get a high top fade. I don't even understand how it worked out. Like, I, <laughs> I'm not even sure. Like, that's how culturally the energy you picked up. <laughs> I appreciate that, man. Everything that you said was true. <laughs> I mean, this has been so healthy for me in, in quarantine, and I, and I think for all the fans, too. You know what I mean? Who I mean, this is crazy. I mean, you know. No, thank you, man. I just want to say uh, uh, I really appreciate you doing this with me, man, and, and I would love to do it again. Everybody, rock up. I resign. Peace. Dilated people. <laughs> Yo, thank you for listening to Mobile Homies. Make sure you subscribe and hit me with a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you catch your podcasts. For more content, hit up lyricsborn.com. Love y'all. Uh.